0: You love someone, you give them a giant library and lock them in your castle. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
2: That could work, actually. Uh, Yeah, go for that. (laughs) Everybody say that.
0: I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast.
1: Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest.
0: This month we're reading Wintersmith, which is Terry Pratchett's take on Seasons Greetings.
1: (laughs) And our guest is
0: award-winning sci-fi
1: and fantasy author Garth Nix. Welcome, Garth. Hello. Thank you for having me on the Pratchett. Thank you for joining us. What a delight. You're a Pratchett fan. You've spoken to him more than once. Is that right?
2: Uh, yes, the only just. I mean, I played the the role of the interviewer at the Sydney Opera House when he appeared there. He didn't really need an interview. It was explained to me they just needed someone to start him up. He <laughs> liked someone. He liked someone to help him get started, and then you just sort of went along for the ride, which was absolutely true. And I had met him once previously at a. I can't even actually remember what it was. A book thing in the United Kingdom, probably. In the early 2000s Basically just in, in passing And we crossed paths elsewhere as well But not to actually talk As it were mm. So, But I did have that great experience Of helping him get started at the, at the Opera House And I've now forgotten what year that was I should have looked it up beforehand, shouldn't I? That's a footnote, I think, isn't <laughs> it? Yeah
1: Garth Gonteri started at the Opera House On the 17th of April, 2011 About six months before the publication Of the 39th Discworld novel, Stuff, and only a couple of months before the broadcast of his documentary on euthanasia, Terry Pratchett choosing to die. While the recording of the chat is no longer available via the Sydney Opera House website, it is still on the third-party audio hosting service Mixcloud, and you'll find a link to it in our episode notes. Were you a bit starstruck? Were you a big fan at the time?
2: Yeah, though, I mean, I've, I've been a big fan from the very beginning, really. I read The Colour of Magic the year it came out, but I'd actually already read The Carpet People huh. before that um, wow. Possibly not when it came out, but in my, in my teens at some point. And then I just kept reading, as you do, obviously. So I'd read basically all the books up to the point when I interviewed him. I, I'd missed maybe a couple and I, I went back and, and read them. Um, so yes, definitely a fan and, uh, and a great admirer of his work. So it, it was a pleasure to, to do that interview and have that opportunity to, to spend
1: a bit of time with him. Of course, some of our listeners will be just as familiar with your books as Terry's. Was he an influence, do you think, on your style of writing?
2: Well, I think everyone's an influence, but I think, yeah, definitely. I mean, because the good writers always influence you more, so you don't always know exactly how. But I think when you love someone's work and you you read it for years and you always want to read the new books, uh, you just take it in. It sort of becomes part of the, the mixture of your writer DNA, which is the product of many parents. And certainly, yeah, he would, he was certainly one of them. I, I, I guess because, you know, his books weren't around when I was a child. It was when I was a teenager that they started to appear or in my early twenties. They're probably perhaps not as influential as some of, some of the ones that I read growing up, but I think they would have been if they had been around earlier. But yeah, I think definitely an influence in, and on lots of different writers in, in many ways because he had a unique way of doing certain things and he showed people, I think. A way to be funny and lighthearted in relatively simple prose, but it was nearly always actually laden with deeper meaning. And I think that's, that's one of the things that, that he did extraordinarily well. That's a lesson, you know, that could, could be learned from that, that it's possible to do that. Actually, then doing it is a completely different question. <laughs> but, but you <laughs> know, at least he showed it, it was possible to address very serious things in a lighthearted way, but it's, there's still, you know, very heavily freighted with, with emotion. And, and to do it, I mean, it looks simple, but it's not. It's
0: lighthearted, but not shallow, ever.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's quite hard, I think, to write funny things that linger a long time and make you think about them for a long time, which is also something that, that I think he, he nearly always did. So, um, mm. yeah, lots of lots of lessons to be learned. And, of course, you know, one of the great things about reading books that you love is you learn the lessons without actually even trying, you don't actually have to study them. You just kind of absorb it. Again, it doesn't mean you'll be able to do it, but it gives you a better understanding of, of how you might,
1: perhaps. No, definitely. You know, you didn't get into the books until you were a teenager. They went around. Uh, I didn't find them until I was a teenager either. And in fact, the first time reading through, I skipped over all of these books for younger readers. But did you read these ones as well at like the Tiffany Aching? Ones? I read
2: them as they came out. That's an interesting question. I was thinking about it, you know, because I think there's two questions. One is they feel somewhat separate from the other Discworld books, even mm. though they are part of that world. And of course, there's characters from the sort of greater Discworld, you know, Granny Weatherwax and so on. But to me, they have always felt a little bit different. And I don't think it's because. Uh, they're published for, originally were published for children or young adults. And in fact, I, didn't, I don't think they needed to be either. Mm. That, that was, mm. I mean, that's a whole big question of what is a children's book? What is a young adult book? And I think in, in Terry Pratchett's case, it's, a, it's even more of a question because of course, children and young adults read all the other books as well mm. and get a lot from them. So sort of singling out these, uh, you know, I wonder if it was more of a question that, you know when it was he first showed it to his publisher and they said oh okay well Tiffany's a young girl this should be a children's book or they were sort of thinking we'll try to expand the audience even more even though he has you know a massive audience but there is a slight sensibility where they feel they feel a little bit different to me I'm I'm not sure I mean maybe I don't know what do you guys think about that?
0: It feels to me kind of like it's a spin-off, so like it's within the same world, but a spin-off series, um, kind of, I guess, like the good fight to the good wife, where they're both good, but there's the same, not good just because of the titles, but because of their the worlds. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, what you're saying with publishing things, I think it is... Something that can act as another way into the Discord series because I think when a series gets very long, it can be overwhelming. It's why I've never watched Star Trek because I'm like, where do I start? There's so much of it. How do I navigate all of this? But you can, if you've never read a Discord book, I think you can get into it through the Tiffany books, and that's less overwhelming. I'm not saying that's why they were written or why they were published or why they were marketed a certain way, but they they do serve that purpose. Yeah, they
2: they they pre- present that opportunity. Uh, it did make me want to go back and look at The Colour of Magic again, which came out when I was 20, so I read it when I was 20, because *Discworld* itself evolved over time as well, because I think you know, The Colour of Magic is actually a much more a comic novel and doesn't have as much of the sort of serious underlayer that occurs in the later books. But all the Tiffany a. King books, it feels just just like the mixture has changed a little bit. So, it's a little bit more serious undercurrent and less of the comic, maybe. Mm. It's just like he's just adjusted the mixture a little bit, his own unique mixture. He's mixed the cordial a little bit differently. But I don't think it's anything to do with being a children's or a young adult book. It's just the nature of those books and where mm. they where they came from. He wanted to do something a little bit different. That, that's what it feels like to me. I mean, everyone has their favourite Discworld novels I mean, they're, and they're all great. I mean, it's that You get that thing where... You know, you have an author you love and you read a book and you say, ah, oh, it's, I don't like this one quite as much as the others. But it's because you're comparing really good books to other really good books or even really great books. Yeah. So they're still better than most other people's, but, but, you know, <laughs> in comparison. Um, so of course everyone has, has favorites, particularly the Weave Free Men actually, I think is, is, pos- mm-hmm. is, you know, is one of my all time Pratchett favorites. And and possibly it's because of that, that sort of mixture. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure.
0: Mm. I actually found I really loved this one. Like, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed this one. And I think perhaps we got more fegals and that came <laughs> into it for me. But maybe I'm just um, remembering the balance of it incorrectly. Well, no,
1: I think that sounds right.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's... There's actually less of them than in the Wee Free Men, but there's probably more than some of the others. I don't know. Maybe yeah. it's maybe it's the sort of the deep mythic underpinnings of the legend. I, I don't know. It just. I mean, it, it just it, it works. Everything works, and maybe it's because it's Tiffany growing up as well. Though in a way, her age is kind of irrelevant. I think. I was reading. I was thinking she could actually be eighteen or twenty, and she has a certain sort of innocence because of where she comes from. And she doesn't really often f- feel to me like, w- w- you know, through the books, her age. She doesn't feel like a. Uh, how old is she in the first one? The we for a minute is she six or seven?
1: I think she's eight in the first one.
2: She's eight. I mean, she's very young, but it's kind of it doesn't matter because she feels like she could be any age. And that that's another thing I found interesting is people look at it and think, okay, it's got an eight-year-old heroine, so it must be a children's book. But actually, I don't think that, that necessarily follows. I do think children love this book, and I think adults love the book. And of course, adults can love children's books. I mean, I do. But it's kind of a timeless book in in, in many ways, and and the age of the protagonist doesn't really matter. But she has a certain sort of innocence which comes from her background, and how she's grown up. But then she also has a this you know power and sophistication which is constantly growing because she's a witch of incredibly promising powers. Yeah, it's all very interesting how he makes it work.
0: Hmm. I think it's interesting that Wentworth, her brother, is now roughly the age she was when the series started, but he is useless except at catching fish. But also, like, want to go still... toilet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've I've had a complaint about Wentworth in previous Tiffany episodes, but like he's come along a little bit. But like she still has to like stack the scales to protect his feelings. Whereas when she was his age, she was like doing a lot more stuff, and no one was doing that for her. And I found that quite frustrating. But. it's Interesting character-wise to have that contrast now mm. because they're technically raised the same, though I think he's been coddled because he's the boy, but yeah, and and the youngest, I guess. I mean, she's
2: also immensely self-contained. She doesn't need external validation. I mean, in that classic children's book way, her parents are largely absent. Hmm. I mean, they are technically there, but they really have very little to do with her life, it seems. I mean, even her life on the farm, doing the chores. I mean, she's mastered the chores. She's the expert cheesemaker. They leave her to it, even at eight.
3: Hmm.
2: She's she's doing all the stuff, which is a variation on, on the sort of classic children's book thing of having the parents dead or removed. I mean, they're there, but they don't have a lot to do with it. And then, and then of course... In Windsmith she's gone. She, you know, she's left to, or uh, actually in the previous book, isn't it, she goes to mm. um, with Miss Tick initially. It's interesting how self-contained a character she is and how competent. One mm. of the things which makes her so interesting, of course, mm. I mean, she's immensely competent, but of course still challenged by these incredibly huge challenges that she faces. Mm. Um, I mean, if she was any less competent, and less able to learn and and grow, the books would be short and finish end horribly. because she's
0: in some pretty intense situations in every single one. Mm.
2: Oh, super intense!
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I, I am enjoying the uh, the ongoing theme of her making her own problems, though, which um, mm. which I feel is very relatable. <laughs> to Absolutely, all
0: yeah, yeah. But- everyone else like who makes their own problems in the book she ends up having to solve them as well so <laughs> mm. it's not it's not fair
1: well let's get into the <laughs> plot with so much to say about it we better get into it but we'll begin as we usually do with a reading of the blurb <laughs> tiffany aking is a trainee witch now working for the seriously scary miss treason but when tiffany witnesses the dark dance the crossover from summer to winter she does what no one has ever done before and leaps into the dance, into the oldest story there is, and draws the attention of the Wintersmith himself. Now the spirit of winter is in love with her. He gives her roses and icebergs, and showers her with snowflakes, which is tough when you're 13, but also just a little bit... cool. But if Tiffany doesn't work out how to deal with him, there will never be another springtime.
0: Ooh. So I have I have a shortened version of that that oh, just really? um, is the end, like about the witchness being in love with her. And I read this before going into the book and I was like how dare you like put such a huge spoiler on the back of the book. Cause it's not till about a quarter of the way in that that's revealed what's going on. Cause like he sets up this beautifully sinister opening scene where everything is covered in ice and there's a whole sense of danger and urgency. And then you slowly learn that like you you get to the dance, you still don't know why he's seeking her. And like the fact that he's in love with her is revealed later on. And if I were him and I delicately laid out all of this story only for it to be blown on the back cover, I'd be a little bit peeved.
3: <laughs> yeah,
2: blurbs.
1: Well, is it a big reveal? I think it
2: is. I mean, that's another, and it's interesting you mention what is essentially a prologue of something that doesn't happen. Hmm. It doesn't do that in any of the other books, as far as I can remember. No. So, it's quite that's quite interesting as well. Um, cause it, and it does greatly heighten the stakes. You're instantly extremely concerned. Yeah, blurbs... Blurbs come sometimes if you don't watch them carefully. They can creep past and do things you don't want them to do, particularly sometimes when someone has written a synopsis for internal purposes hmm. and that and then due to time or you know, lack of uh, oversight. I mean, I, I worked in, in publishing and people, you know, you get tired and think, well, there's a synopsis, so I'll just turn that into a blurb and maybe you never actually read the book at all. You're just adapting this one-page synopsis someone's written. And so, terrible spoilers end up in book blurbs sometimes, and and it's nearly always run past. It should be always run past the author, and these things are typically found out. How dare you put that spoiler in there? And it goes away again. But sometimes things happen where the author doesn't see it or doesn't notice it or thinks they've read it. I'm speaking for myself here. Yeah. Uh, and, I thought uh,
3: you might
0: be. Yeah. I think.
2: Oh, I'm sure I read. I'm sure I read. Oh, actually, I never opened that email. Um. So. But yes, I I do think it is a spoiler, and mm. and would be better off not in the blurb. But
0: if it ended that she joins the dance. I think that would have been sufficient to draw in readers without giving too much away.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I mean, it's, you want to know what happens. I, even the fact, I mean, obviously there's something problematic with that. So not knowing what happens is actually more interesting than than going one step further and, and, and spelling it out. Mm. But as I said, it's I can completely understand how that blurb happened and how it ended up on the back of the book.
1: Yeah. I mean, I quite like the bit where it says that she's drawn the attention of the Wintersmith. I think because that, that's, yeah. that's set up very quickly in that first chapter, which, as you say, is this weird – not weird, like a lot of books do it, but Pratchett has not done this sort of mm. start near the end and then go back to the start kind of set up, this sort of flash forward, if you will – it very quickly sets those stakes, as you say. It also kind of does say he's interested in her, and you don't know why, you don't know what. Yeah. There's lots of little hints of what's to come, you know, Tiffany looking at one of the snowflakes and going, oh, it's one of his special ones, but we don't know what's special about them. Yeah, lots of stuff that will recur or happen for the first time later in the book.
0: It is interesting as a flash forward to a potential future that doesn't eventuate. It's interesting. In yeah, te- technically.
2: I mean, it just as a technical thing. I can't think of many other books that do it i'm sure there are examples but i was just struck by it because it's not something i can remember terry pratchett doing in any other book but of course works and it must have just felt right to him you know i I did wonder if it actually was something he wrote that did happen later and then he just took it out and decided that i don't want to waste it Uh, yeah i'll just i'll move it back to the beginning and uh, where it does work as a scene setter and immediately takes you in and you think "Uh uh-oh
0: Yeah. We can't get to this point. This is why she has to, like, fight against it, why she can't just enjoy her, like, crown of ice. Yeah. I mean, I found it a bit
1: weird at the end of this first chapter. So, we should say what happens in it, right, is that uh, it's springtime (laughs) in the chalk, but there is a huge snowstorm, like, there's snow everywhere. In fact, a really heavy snowfall that has buried some of the sheep and the new lambs.
0: There's no escape from it. (laughs) This here and stuff, not cool. Um, that's but, pretty good actually. Yeah.
1: Oh, the get ready, God, there's gonna be more, there's <laughs> gonna be more, but uh, I and mean, they usually get a cold reception,
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> no, uh, and she's got to do something about it as the witch. And she has this whole amazing conversation with her father, who is hardly in the rest of the book, but has this great scene at the start here where she's reassuring him that she can do this, she's a witch now, she can help them. And he's sort of trusting in her, but also worried and also tells her that, look, it's not just the sheep we've got to worry about. Your little brother's gone missing. He was trying to help people. And she gives him a job to do, which is to make sure that he and the other men build this bonfire and keep it as hot as possible so that she can use the heat from the fire magically to sort of channel through her and melt the snow and rescue the sheep and her brother. Although it doesn't quite work out like that because the fire burns so hot that it burns out. And there's that one little paragraph that really struck me where her father sees the fire going out and he's trying to throw himself on the flames to keep it going because he knows it's protecting her. Uh, even though he doesn't really understand how magic works, he sort of has this intuitive kind of understanding in that moment. And the other men are holding him back. And I'm like, that's, oh, that gets me right in the feels. Um, but then the, mm. the fire does run out and she's left defenseless against the Wintersmith. And so th- all that happens in this first chapter. And then right at the end, He says that hasn't happened yet, and it might not even happen, but I think it's pretty clear when we get to the last chapter that basically it's the bit missing between the last two chapters. It does definitely happen. So, I thought it was a bit weird that he leaned on that, this hasn't happened yet, maybe it won't thing at the end there, particularly when he doesn't do anything to sort of remind you much about what that first chapter is when you get to chapter 13. He just sort of jumps back in as if you'd just read it. And I'm like, I had to go back and just- remind myself a little bit what happened at the start.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting, that is a very interesting point. I mean, it is is an unusual construction. I'm looking back myself, even
1: as we speak. It's quite a cinematic kind of device. Like you see this in like heist films, but they often don't, they don't start quite as close to the end as this. Like they don't really start at the climax and then jump to the resolution.
2: Yeah, it is a very classic cinematic device.
0: You need it. Because I think if we had it starting as like she's off working with Miss Treason, then she joins this dance and he's hunting for it, you would be like, so what? Hmm. You wouldn't be that worried. You'd be like, oh, well, he'll make things a bit cold off. Oh, maybe some ships are going to get damaged, which is like an abstract thing far away. But because her whole thing is her home, her family, all of that, you see exactly why it would be bad for her to not fight against this, whereas i Honestly, I think if we hadn't been shown this right up front, we'd have sort of plodded along being like, this is not that serious.
2: It's very interesting because, I mean, most of the story takes place when she's elsewhere, though she's either at Miss Treason's or she's at Nanny Ogg's, Mm -hmm. And so she's not at home, but it's what could happen to her home is actually the key indication of what this would mean, what the Winnersmith could do. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't show what the Winnersmith could do to Miss Treason's village or around Nanny Ogg's. It's what could take place around her home, which is kind of interesting and it makes more sense. Yeah, it is an unusual construction, but it does work. I mean, maybe he just was wanted to do something a bit different, yeah. just interesting for himself, which, you know, I, I do that too. I mean, it's uh, you know, trying different ways to tell stories. And particularly, I think, you know, you brought this up, Ben. I guess, you know, writing a long, a long series, the differences within the series, writing different kinds of books within a big series is probably part of, you know, making it interesting for him to write them as well, just to keep things fresh and interesting, which I think the Tiffany Aching series as a whole probably was that as well. You know, it's a variation on a theme without actually leaving the theme, if that makes sense. (laughs) Um, Yeah. The familiar but new, which is always appealing, I think, and it's appealing to readers as well as to the creator.
1: Mm. One of the things we often say when he's writing the non-children's books when they're not of chapters is that he he has this sort of very cinematic style where they you know he just yeah. cuts between scenes he does a lot of shot matching kind of things where he'll end a scene with something that matches something at the start of the next scene and I think he's done the same thing here because the the first chapter ends quite soon after one of the fegals who almost has no other role in the book just says Crivens. Uh, and has a distinctive name. Um, and when we get to that last chapter, one of the first things that happens in that last chapter is that same figle saying that thing. Um, yeah. and normally, you know, in the, and I was just thinking in the heist movie, like you'd have the narrator's voice come in at that point and say, Oh, this is where you came in. And then they'd go on, but we don't have any of that reminder. And of course, you know, in a film, that thing that you're expected to remember happened no more than an hour or two ago. So you can probably remember it but the book it might be a long time <laughs> since you read the first chapter so it's an interesting technique it's one that i see I sometimes work, work with young kids writing and one of the things that we always try to overcome is a lot of them have been taught that the start of your book has to be super exciting or the story you know and you're like yes that's good but it doesn't have to be the only way you do it and one of the things they're taught they can do is if they don't think anything at the start of their story is exciting they can start with the exciting part and then Go back in time to show how they got to that part, and, and which is you know what's happening here. Um, yeah. So maybe it's maybe he did it partly because it's popular with the age group he had in mind. I don't know. It is exciting, but it also means that then we can jump forward or backwards in time. I should say half a Sideways. year. Sideways. Sideways. <laughs> we'll do a cross step and meet Tiffany as she's working with Miss Treason who is one of the new witches introduced in this book. Let's talk, we have to talk about Miss Treason. I mean, the second chapter is named for her. She's an extraordinary character.
0: She's so well rendered. Like I could see her very clearly and I can't always get that with his characters. Like you get a sketch of them and then you build them in your own mind. But I feel like there's only one way you can picture her because he lays it out so clearly. And the idea of her with like two ravens, like looking... For her, which is so creepy, but then he offsets it with like he's like the back of her cloak is a mess at the end of every day, and I'm (laughs) like, okay, she's not like that scary, but it's just really spooky, and I kind of wanted more of her. Like, I'd like a whole book of that, honestly. But
2: yeah, she she is great, and I she is creepy though. I mean, the whole concept Mm -hmm. of borrowing other eyes and ears is itself extremely creepy, Um, and it's just it's also just very interesting another variation on his witches and their powers and I, I like the way that tiffany discovers more about her too and about her style of witchery you know that the whole boffo <laughs> the whole boffo strand of witchery as it were which you know, again is funny but it's also commentary on the kind of baffling with bullshit you see in in real life um, (laughs) as well from all kinds of people. So, there's that sort of recurrent thread. And I I guess that's actually through lots of Pratchett witches, the whole idea that if you think you can do it, you probably can. Mm. And if you have the confidence, you show the confidence, then everything else will follow. And I I do wonder if that was a sort of personal philosophy of his, Mm. that if you believe you can do it, you probably can.
3: Yeah.
0: Um,
2: So... But, yeah, I, I I love mysteries. and
0: She shows the importance of the story as well, which comes through, like, in all of the characters in their own sort of way. Because even, like, Anna Grammer, who sucks at everything she does. Um, <laughs> She's thought, as a human because- being. Yeah. Sucks
2: as a human being. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, she is confident. Like, so she, like, she learned how to harness the story for her own benefit. But you see her story starting to fail as well. Because prior to this, like, she had everyone sort of in her thrall because mm. she was this confident-seeming head witch coven lady but her story is not holding up anymore and you can see that that's affecting her competence and her confidence and all of that. And so she learns to tell a new story and that's sort of theme coming through again as well, like how stories are sometimes more important than truth.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think she's kind of a counterexample or perhaps an example of where sort of using confidence for the wrong ends is mm. bad. Mm. So it's not just enough to have the confidence you can do something you have also have to be doing the right thing. Yeah. So, it's sort of like misplaced confidence is, is actually a bad thing. Mm. And and she certainly has that because she wants to employ it only for selfish reasons, for her own advantage. And there's really quite a lot of her starting to learn that that's, that's not the way to do things. Via Tiffany, really. I mean, you know, Tiffany helps show her the way. Though... I'm not sure at the end whether she's really learned that because, mm. you know, when Tiffany meets one of the villagers and hears about mm. their new fantastic witch and how she's teaching the young witches <laughs> from all around, where of course they're actually teaching her. Mm. But she's a great, I mean, Anna is a great example of an unpleasant person.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, she's very well rendered that particular kind of super annoying, overconfident person who just has selfish aims.
0: And as someone who grew up with like a group of female friends, it was very interesting to see like that friendship group, well like not so much friendship group or like group of young women thrown together through circumstance, all the very specific personalities that you could kind of be like, oh yeah, I recognize that, especially, um, I've forgotten her name, like Pachulia? Pachulia for She's my favourite. She's confident oh. when she's in her element, but is all um and people-pleasing when she's just talking one-on-one. And the way that Tiffany sums her up is like she's trying to tell you what you want to hear, so she tells her everything so she can't figure out what, yes. what she's supposed to go yeah. with. And it's just it's a beautifully rendered group of personalities, and I really love how authentically that's done.
1: It's very mean girls, really. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it, it totally captures that vibe. Yeah. Just to get back to Miss Treason for a minute, mm. she's- I, I didn't know- because I haven't read the Tiffany books before until we're reading them for the podcast now, so I still haven't read the, the last two. I'm really looking forward to it because I'm loving them so much. And what I didn't expect is that in each book, we would meet a new witch who would be teaching Tiffany. And, you know, in the first book, it's kind of- Miss Tick and Granny Aching are kind of the two witches that you meet who we don't know before. And then in the second book, A Hatful of Sky, it's Miss Level and her weird- there's two of her and then there's-
0: Levels to
1: her. One of her, but then there's kind of still two of her. And she's only sort of mentioned in passing in this book, but I loved her as a character. And then we get Miss Treason, who's totally different again. And I'm like, how many different amazing witches can you write, Pratchett? Like, are there- are they going to be- Yeah, there's lots. There's no end. Many. There's so many. <laughs>
2: And they're so so inventive with them too. I mean they yeah. are they're all so unique and fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean I think he had that sort of witchery himself of being able to look at things differently to other people. I mean he second sight, third sight, I don't know, fourth sight or something mm-hmm. because uh, just the sheer invention of those characters, you know, Miss Level having two bodies and then and then still having the second body after one's been killed. I mean Yeah. Just the idea of it—it's just—it's brilliant. And then you know, Miss Treason, who's on one level a theatrical witch, but at the same time also has very genuine, awesome powers. Mm -hmm. His invention is always just incredible, really. It's often around personalities too. I mean, it's often around characters, but in in lots of small things as well. Just turns of phrase, which he's famous for, of Mm -hmm. course—a way of saying something that someone else has never said before. Whenever I'm reading his books, I often have to pause just to, to think about a particular sentence. <laughs> only yeah. he could, only he would write that or think of how that could work. And, and it works and it's funny or it's clever or both, or sometimes deeply thoughtful in a, a unique way. Mm. So, and, and there's certainly quite a lot of that in, in Wintersmith.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: It was a line I really liked about how people with muscles suddenly get nervous around people who are strong in other ways, mm. which I found just a really interesting way of putting that idea, which I think ties in with what you were saying about how he has a tone of phrase that is just unexpected.
2: Yeah, and he wouldn't say something just plainly. He just wouldn't spell it out, but he would actually tell it to you plainly just in a different way, in a, a clever mm. and often funny way. Mm which is such a skill
3: yeah
1: and then when he does want to say things plainly he has characters who are ready to do it i mean this this mm. chapter opens with tiffany visiting granny weatherwax who shows her a trick that we have seen her using in the sort of flash forward in the first chapter of conducting heat magically through herself without it burning her on the way through. And, you know, when Tiffany sort of presses her about it, she just says, well, magic's mostly just moving stuff around. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, that goes right back to how Pratchett has always talked about magic, which is sort of this practical thing that you can do. But it's just, yeah, it's great. And during that visit also, the incredibly important thing that happens is that Tiffany gives Granny Weatherwax a tiny white kitten. You. Yeah, yeah you. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Did not see that coming.
0: Yeah, but it's so good. And, like, the not- – because, like, people don't usually write meep for cats, but it's very accurate. For a tiny kitten. It's
1: perfect. Yeah, for a small mm. kitten.
2: Yes. Mm. Yeah. Well, again, I guess that's an example of him choosing – Or making up exactly the right word Hmm. which often is not one commonly used in a particular way, but he'll make it work.
0: Yeah. And he deploys it very well later because it is so uniquely (laughs) to, with the cornucopia. Yes. Oh yes.
1: (laughs) Yes. And contrasts really well with the noise that he gives the chickens too. I mean, the other thing about Miss Treason that I just want to mention, I love that Pratchett's not precious about the gifts that he's given to the other witches, because Granny Weatherwax, she's clearly, everyone acknowledges she's the most powerful witch in the mountains at the moment, at least. But borrowing has been her thing in previous novels. Like, it Lords and Ladies ends with that famous sequence of her managing to do what no one has ever done and borrowing an entire hive of bees, like a swarm. Whereas here, Miss Treason is so good at borrowing- That she can do it while she's awake. Like, she doesn't have to lie down. Like, she can talk to people and be seeing through the eyes, not just of one creature, but many.
2: Many. And listening.
1: At the same time. Awesome. And she's 113 years old.
0: No, she's 111. Uh, Oh, but- (laughs) Claims
1: to be 113. (laughs) It's (laughs) a more occult
0: number. It's too comedic if she's a Bilbo Baggins age. Yeah. (laughs)
1: That's- he's always got these- uh, I I saw an interview recently, an old interview with Pratchett, where he talked about Tolkien's influence on fantasy, and he described- how did he put it? It was great. He said, Tolkien to fantasy literature is like Mount Fuji in Japanese art. It's always there somewhere. Like, it might be way off in the distance. It might be right there in the foreground. Maybe you can't see it, but that's because, you know, the author is standing on top of it. Or they've made a very deliberate decision to leave it out. And I thought that's such a good thing. But whenever he has Tolkien stuff, it's always so subtle. Well, almost always. There's the Gollum thing in Witches Abroad, which is not subtle at all. But mostly it's very subtle and you can miss it, even if you've read plenty of Tolkien stuff. I hadn't even thought about eleven one One until you just said that.
0: And, yeah, there's a character who loves to put dragons in things. So, But, I mean, <laughs> Tolkien doesn't own dragons. <laughs>
1: No. No one owns dragons. No, that's true. But in this first chapter, the other things that happen is we learn about Miss Treason, who's not just scary- her thing is justice. That's what people come to her for. She's like the judge duty of the
0: Ram Tops. And She has the blindfold and things. So it's just oh. like, and she has the two, it's just very well the
1: skulls with the,
0: the image of oh. it is very strongly done. Yeah. Like it's, lady justice. I,
1: yeah. those scenes, I could see them in my, you know, you know, and this again, this is like the sort of cinematic style. you, you he paints such a great picture that you can see in your mind. I mean. Not everyone visualises that way, of course, but I could picture that scene and I'm like, oh, I would be so scared.
0: But in terms of coming up with this character, I wonder if he sort of came up with the concept of I want a witch who dispenses justice and then the, the tying back to Lady Justice statue mm. first or if he started with the idea of that and sort of went, how can I turn that into a character because it is so, such clearly a reference and I would never thought about how horrifying it would be to see her take her blindfold off, so... Mm.
2: And she's weaving as well. Oh. So, there's the whole aspect of fate and the villagers certainly believe that she's weaving them into something. Yeah. So, she's got a number of different levels. She's she's their judge and possibly executioner in yeah. their minds, I'm sure.
1: She's watching over them all constantly. Yeah.
0: yeah. Not to be too English essay about it, but she's got a looming fate in the <laughs> book as well. So, like it just kind of works on a wordplay level. Oh. Which I feel like surely that's not accidental, but like also it could be because having the, the weaving is like a classic thing as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And there's lots of allusions to various, well, the whole thing is drawn from Greek myth on one level, mm. but there's lots of little allusions along the way as well, as, as there often is. Yeah.
1: I th- Pratchett's the sort of author who really wears his, not influences, I don't think it's quite the right word, but he's very widely read and he always did a ton of research for everything he ever wrote. And it shows. And I think I particularly- He he
2: likes to- he shows it to you. Yeah. I mean, he's showing this. I've taken this raw material and I'm doing this with it.
1: Yeah. If I fold it this way, look, I can make it into a- Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. I bet you never knew you could do this with that old Greek myth. Yeah.
1: And I particularly love when he reinvents stuff like that in the disc world and just finds a way to give it, like, just enough of a different name that maybe there's a joke or maybe it's a reference to something else he's already written about, but it's still recognizably- you know, Orpheus and Eurydice, but it's not. It's the Discworld version, so they've got slightly different names and, yes. and so on. And all and the different- nature's often too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and all the different fairy tales that sort of are drawn on for not just Miss Treason's stories, but also Tiffany's journey through the book, you know, where there's all these bits that come from different places. And it's kind of- it's like Granny says, you know, you're, you're stuck in the story now, but that doesn't mean it's a recognisable- Pre-told story. It means it's made up of the bits of stuff that the other stories are made of, which I I really loved. But we, you know, this chapter also has. Oh man, you, you've got me onto the English essay terms now, Liz. I was just about to say it also has the inciting incident. I'm like, no, don't, don't. don't. I mean, it's <laughs> let's true. Let's draw. Let's draw a little graph. Uh, of what, you know. No, let's this is, not. This is becoming too much like my
0: day job. What's your topic sentence?
1: No, uh, I refuse the. Um, <laughs> We we've heard about the Dark Morris before. It's mentioned in previous books. We don't see it. It's danced at the opposite end of the year to the regular Morris dance. But in this book, Miss Treason is like, "Well, I I've, I've watched it every year and we're going to watch it. It needs to be witnessed. It's important." And Tiffany's like, "I don't really want to go." And she's like, "Don't you dare defy me." And it's like when I think she it's the it's the part of the book for me Where she's most scary because when she's telling her off later, it's like, well, you've done something wrong. That seems reasonable. Whereas here she's just like, no, you will do what I say. And it gives you a bit more of an insight into what their life together has been like up until now, which I quite liked.
0: It seems like it's one of the solid pillars of like, these are the things we must do as witches and everything else has like wiggle room. But Mm. there's something that they won't bend on.
3: Yeah.
1: They go off to see the dark Morris and she gives her three rules, very gremlins, like there's three rules.
2: And very fairy tale too. Yeah.
1: As is the fact that uh, she just can't bring herself to follow those rules. (laughs) And she sees a gap in the dance and she jumps in there, hears a couple of voices, and then gets squashed by the dancers,
0: Um, which we don't find out until later, but they're Morris dancers. (laughs) They're big fit folks. Like she's going seamlessly through it, but it's only when like the thing happens that suddenly- it all gets messed up and tangled up because she's like thrown a spanner in the works of the story. Mm.
1: It only just occurred to me as I was looking that she breaks all three of the rules that she's given. Like she speaks, she looks at the audience, not just at the dancers, which is what she's told is the only thing she's to look at, and then she joins the dance. So she's really set herself up. But it's but you're right. It's she she does really well until that moment.
0: Um, but it's like the golden rule never explain the plan because um, that means the plan is not going to work. So. <laughs> don't tell the rules to a young girl because that's true but i guess we should probably rock it along because otherwise we could easily spend like a good hour in each of the scenes of this because there's so much oh, there's going on So much on. going
1: on. but um, as we get into the the third chapter this is where the sort of aftermath of the dance and fegals and the fegals show up uh which is delightful i i was i wasn't sure how much i mean i love them but i was also like hmm, uh, This. how do they fit into this? So, I was really interested to know how they were going to interact with this story, given the premise, which seemed like it would be quite a personal thing for Tiffany. But I think that first scene also kind of explained that to me a bit, where it was like, no, it's like the whole world's turning into winter. You need all the help you can get. But she's a real jerk about it. After she's done the dancing, she, like, refuses to really own up to it. And she's like, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't, like, she's not really giving a proper
0: apology, Because she didn't really have control. Like she didn't. I'd argue she didn't actually do anything wrong. Like she lost control of her body. It was like her connection with nature made her do it. Mm -hmm. Like I think if she'd sat down and thought, "I don't want to do this," she still couldn't have. Like it was something entirely outside of her control. So I don't know if I could own up to that either.
2: She's also very much twelve. Yeah. (laughs) In this particular part, I mean, I, I did say often I think she is kind of ageless, but actually in this part. And enjoying the dance and so on. She is 12, almost 13. Yeah. Just not really understanding what's at stake, partly because it's not been explained to her. You know, she's just been told some rules without, this will happen if you don't do these things. I mean, and I guess that's actually a classic example of adults telling children not to do something without actually giving them any context of why they shouldn't. Hmm. Um, and at 12, 13, that is a classic thing to rebel against. Yeah. Being told to do something without actually having any idea why you shouldn't be. It just seems arbitrary. It's like the arbitrary exercise of power, but I also I do agree. I think she's also kind of an embodiment of the nature of the chalk. Mm. So maybe that's that's what's responding to the dance. It's not just her human nature. So mm. it is beyond her control, and in that sense as well, I agree with you, Liz. I think that's always part of her nature. There's things that she does she doesn't understand as a human because she's more than that, mm. Mm. or additionally, is other things as
1: well. Mm. I sort of ended up thinking it was a bit of both. And I think that works as quite a nice metaphor for growing up and having to, you know, understand all of the things that are going on in your mind and your body that you don't understand intrinsically. And you sort of have to feel it out and and figure out, well, why do I feel like this? Why do I have these feelings I didn't have before? Why do I want to do these things that I don't really fully understand yet? And those are all things that we all go through growing up. And then she's got this additional layer of, yeah, I've got this deep connection to the chalk. And as Granny describes it, you know, like a land that used to be alive it has the beat in it. But I also like, you know, I really respect Pratchett's uh, devotion to saying, yeah, the beat is real. The beat is alive. The dance is something you can't necessarily deny. So, I liked that.
0: I do like that every time I'm reading one of her books, I'm like, oh yeah, like this is like some of the coming of age stuff and the things about growing up. And then I'm like, what, what part of puberty is fegal's?
1: <laughs>
0: that is a good yes. question
2: <laughs> I did particularly love That Miss Treason Knows how to talk fegal
1: mm. Oh that was so great
2: And it's such a terrible shock to them
1: <laughs> They uh, can't handle the it The old hag Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that's very funny She's doing the crossing of the arms And the tapping of the feet And the <laughs> yeah. But she just speaks
2: she speaks their language, but she has to sort of remind herself to speak Scots, basically.
0: Mm. She slips up once or twice, but then she corrects herself. Yeah,
1: she corrects herself. Hey, instead of have and so uh, on. Yeah. That scene where she speaks to them while Tiffany's still asleep, I really liked as well, because we don't otherwise really get to see Miss Treason doing her thing without Tiffany there. It was a nice insight into her power yeah. and personality. The other thing in this chapter is that this is where Tiffany sort of reveals that she has discovered Miss Treason's secret and shouts boffo at her, and then she's like orders the Feegles out of the house so they can talk about this. and And I, I'm i sure I've heard this term used by magicians or showies or carnies for you listener, if you're not in Australia, as meaning basically the same thing. Like it's the stuff that you paint up, but I don't know if that's if that's true. But it, or maybe
2: yeah, it 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 is, and it's. I mean, it's also used in you know, show business. Mm you know, boffo business. I mean, it's sort of variety speak mm. for great and amazing. So, I think, you know, he's, he's riffing on that use as well. Yeah. It's another connection to the real world. And I do love that a real witch with real power is also using his shop-bought skulls <laughs> so and great, so on. And the fake uh, webs and everything. It is assist yeah, Couldn't she take the exactly. labels
0: off? Like, surely, like yeah. well,
2: that would be wise yeah, mm-hmm. to, to remove the labels. But um, who knows? And only show them in the dark, as as she does. I'd love to know
1: what they're made of.
2: It doesn't does say. I, don't I think it does because sure they can't the can be
1: plastic, right? They don't have plastic on the Discworld. So, what do you make?
2: But they could be carved out of bone. Mm. I mean, other bone and stuck together, rubber. or rubber, or wood. I guess, or, or al- alabaster. Yeah. I mean, stone. You know, I mean, yeah, they could just be. You know, wood that's been painted. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Nice lead
1: paint that'll do the job. <laughs>
0: and they do have glow in the dark ones, so, like, they've got something going on as well. Yeah.
1: That's true. It's contaminated with glowy magic. Yeah, that was great. I did, because I, I kind of, you know, because I'm familiar with the term, I sort of knew where that was going to go, but I didn't expect it to be revealed in that way. And it's interesting to me that here it's such a big revelation, whereas, like you were saying before, like, that idea of headology and basically lying to people in a way that makes them understand is a big part of all the previous witches books, but even especially, you know, a hat full of sky. Granny is teaching her about medicine and now, you know, you have to tell people something that they'll believe to get them to do what they need to Gems. do to get better. Yeah, if they don't believe in germs, then you tell them there's a goblin in the well. Goblins in the well. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So, it's it felt like it shouldn't have been as big a revelation, but it makes sense because Miss Treason's reputation is so much about all of the supernatural and creepy stuff around her, and then none of that stuff, or most of that stuff anyway, is not really true. But yes, that chapter, they kind of end on a okay note. They sort of get to an understanding of each other, but she's still a bit annoyed with her. Uh, Particularly because she goes outside. There's an important scene where she goes outside because she's in a huff and meets the Wintersmith who gives her the little silver necklace of the chalk horse that Roland gave her in the previous book, which she didn't realise she'd lost during the dance. And as she takes it, it burns her and marks her. It truly
0: becomes her personal brand.
1: (laughs) Yes. And this becomes the way that the Wintersmith can follow her. And the Figgles are getting involved mostly by being annoying, but they're here because- their Kelda genie has had these sort of clairvoyant dreams of eternal winter and things going wrong. So, they're there to sort of figure out what's going on and make sure that their big wee hag is okay, but they also steal her diary and read it. I mean, I think you were saying what role do they take in the sort of story of adolescence, Liz? I think they're the embarrassing relatives who won't go away <laughs> um, and are meddling in your affairs all the time. I mean, the other witches are kind of like that too, but the fegals just, you, she can't escape them. They're always there.
0: But I absolutely love how they bring in like the premonitions, which is like two like spooky things and then like a cheese that walks. And <laughs> yes. even um Miss Trace is like, Well, you've got some good occult things going on then but maybe maybe it's Horace? I don't know. And it, Horace, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I, I, I like oh, and blue
0: cheese, and a it, great creation.
1: But And really <laughs> subtly kind of inter- Like, there's no, like, big explanation of why he's alive. It's just like, I mean, cheeses are alive.
0: Well, they're lively
1: cheeses. He's a bit more alive than other cheeses. That's that's all. <laughs> and
0: like, okay. And I love that Jeannie is invested in Roland and Tiffany as, like, kind of like a soap opera. So, like, she specifically is like, oh, yeah, get in the diary and let me know what's going on with my favourite, what's happening with my stories. <laughs> So. Yeah.
1: Well, I guess I mean with Feagles, that you don't get any of that, right? Because it's a different kind of soap opera. Because it's all dude Feagles just fighting each other all the time.
0: It was just Rob explaining what being married like every so often to a big group of five hundred of his brothers and friends
2: <laughs> who just don't get it anyway, no matter what.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, so weird. Had- And Miss Tick is on her way up there. But as we find out the next chapter, things are already progressing. The Wintersmith hasn't just given her back the pendant. He's starting to do these big shows of affection. The first one of which is that all the snowflakes falling in the area all have Tiffany's face on them. They're all exactly the same. And Tiffany is, like, horribly embarrassed by this. But at the same time, like it says in the blurb, also thinks maybe it's a little bit cool. Which feels to me like such a great capturing of that. Early adolescence starting to get interested in other humans in that way and not really knowing if you're really into this person or how you feel about them I just yeah or well, the whole
2: idea of it it's sort of uncomfortable embarrassing yeah but also attractive yeah so it, it does have all of that wrapped up in that
0: he plays that really well with how she approaches seeing the other girls mm. because she's like, Oh no, they're gonna like ridicule me about this but she also kinda of wants them to and when they don't she's disappointed and it's kinda of like when you're a teenager and you want them to bring up the person's name yes. but um, they don't and you trying to find like ways to make it happen and then you're you're horribly embarrassed if it did and it was just I think that was just handled with precision Like it was just extremely accurate deeply uncomfortable and flung me back to a (laughs) place I didn't really want to remember (laughs) or feel again but
1: yeah. yeah Of um, course, I love that it was Petulia that she chooses to confide in and tell everything oh, to.
0: It couldn't be anyone else.
1: No, it couldn't. I mean, Petulia is the best one. Um, I mean, We don't- well, I mean, apart from Anagramma and Petulia, we don't know a great deal about the other young witches in the couple. Enjoying covering. Lucy, though. <laughs> yeah, Lucy gets a bit more time in this book. She gets a bit more interesting. And I mean, one of the other things that she tells them, shouldn't skip this important plot point, is that Miss Treason, meanwhile, while trying to help Tiffany figure this out, has also realised- uh, quite inconveniently, that she's going to die in a couple of days. So, there's that that's got to be organised as well. Uh, I like how everybody's like, you can't die, you're 113 years old. And she's like,
0: I think that might be part of
1: the reason. Part of the reason. Mm. Uh, which was delightful.
0: It <laughs> was a great sort of comment on mortality there, because she's like, oh, well, I've lived a long time, but you get the same amount of youth as everyone else. You've just got an extra helping of being really, really old. I just hadn't thought about that.
2: Yeah, it does sum it up in a very good way. But he's always very good with death, Mm. obviously, um, (laughs) including the characterization. But just in how people handle it and how the people who are left behind cope with it and all of that. And he makes it funny and sad and kind of realistic as well, which again is a great talent, I think. I mean, including later in this book, Tiffany and Anna Grandma doing the watch overnight with a dead body, which makes noises, mm. which are actually quite accurate, apparently. It's dead, but it's, it was still, you know, the gas escaping and And,
0: and shutting so down.
2: Yeah, just the, uh, like an old building settling, as he says. That's addressing it, the reality of it quite directly, but it's surrounded with other things that make you think about it. Mm. So, you know, they're funny, they're sad, and you think about it. And then, you know, of course, the witches knowing they're going to die is is another level mm. as well. That they know exactly when it's going to happen. So you can have the funeral ahead of time, yeah. You know, <laughs> while you're still alive, going away is, party, you know, yeah, it is a is a great thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, you can get all your affairs directly in order. It's yeah, just,
2: mm. give give your parting gifts, your bequests while you're alive, and, and so on. <laughs> there can't be any arguing. Lobbying. Yeah, <laughs> yes. that was great.
1: Yes. This is what I meant. Yes. Yeah. There's no arguments about the will. <laughs> on that note, I think the other thing that I wasn't quite prepared for in this book is that- And it's not even really a thread. It's just sort of mentioned in the background. But we also find out what's going on with Roland around this time of the book, who's holed up in a, his, like, teenage dream of a bedroom, like an almond castle with a secret door. Where he can get in and out, but no one can bother him. And he's got his own set of keys and secret passages. So good. But he's sort of in this situation where his, his mother having died many years before, even before the first Tiffany book, he's sort of alone with his father, but his father is now ill. And we don't really get a lot of detail about his father, but it's sort of insinuated that whatever's happening with him is maybe some sort of dementia because he's losing his memories. He's not always quite sure who's around him and whether that's a, a fever thing or whether it's a, you know, a, a real onset of that kind of disease is not made clear. But knowing this was, this was published around the time that Pratchett had his own Alzheimer's diagnosis and that's, I, yeah, I wasn't quite ready for that. And then when the way that it comes in at the end in how Roland feels was also, yeah, that was hit me right in the feels. Pratchett was officially diagnosed with posterior cortical atrophy or PCA in 2007 announcing it publicly on the 11th of December via the website that is now discworld.com, but was then still PJSN Prince. PCA is a variety of Alzheimer's which affects motor function and vision first, with only minor effects on memory and cognitive ability until the disease has advanced. Terry traced the presence of symptoms back to at least 2005, and in 2006, the year Wintersmith was published, he, assistant Rob, and his family knew something was up even though they didn't know what it was
3: yet.
0: Is he also potentially being like, he's being sabotaged by the aunts as well, though, isn't he? Because they're bringing in this terrible doctor and Roland makes a point of throwing away some of the treatments whenever he can, Mm. whenever he can sneak to the room. So it seems like it's a bit of both, potentially.
2: Yeah, it certainly feels that way. I mean, to, to me, it felt very much like, you know, the aunts are getting rid of the father and it's explicit that, They will run the place until Roland's 21, Mm. Mm. uh, which is some time off. Um, I mean, in a way, that whole thread is a setup for the next book. So, you know, he's preparing another story in the midst of this story. Yeah, so that's interesting because it takes quite a long time before that plays into this book or Roland, you know, the sort of setup, what's going on with Roland. Mm. But yeah, I think it was clear that the aunts do not mean well. No, Mm. and and Roland is holding out against them. He's besieged more than anything. Mm. He's not just in a huff hiding in his room. He has a very legitimate reason to be taking refuge in his tower.
0: And protecting the last few bits that he can because they have really quite pillaged what remains of their wealth. So I'm not even sure what they're hoping to run for the next like five years or whatnot, because they seem to have sold off most things of value. I'm reading Garth's book at the same time as this, and there's a strange parallel of a character that's sick in a castle with a main character, oh, not a castle, but in a grand home. And so because I was reading them at the same time, they sort of cross-pollinated, and I expected <laughs> things to go so much more horrifyingly in this one. <laughs> so I'm glad that that didn't eventuate in this one as well. Sorry. Oh, fear not a spoiler, it's in the vaguest of terms, it just well, turns just, out quite yeah, differently.
2: The synchronicity of things happening, even in mm. books.
0: Yeah, because yeah. I often read books at the same time and they sneak into each other in strange yeah, ways. Yeah, I so. do
2: too. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm often, I in fact, invariably, am reading more than one book at a time and sometimes you, know, you are still in the other book when you go into a, a different one and things can merge in your mind a little bit.
0: Hmm. Yeah So I was quite worried for Roland for different
1: reasons <laughs> Oh no but yeah. but yeah We get to the going away party And the other important thing that's happening At the coven meeting and at the going away party Is deciding who's going to take over Miss Treason's cottage
0: Beautiful bit of politics Oh
1: so good Because clearly Mrs. Awaj Or Ewig
0: We're not going to indulge her We're going to say Ewig Just say Ewig We'll say Ewig No hyacinth okay, bouquet stuff no. here <laughs>
1: She's barely in this book, but her presence is so clearly felt through Anagramma, and she wants Anagrama to have it. Who's also the you know the oldest and most experienced of all the apprentice witches. Although having said that, it's not really clear what her experience is in because she can't do any of the things that all of the witches do all of the time.
2: She is the oldest
1: though. Yeah,
0: yeah. She can do flashy magic though, because I'm when she makes a fireball later. I'm not sure if that's a boffer thing or because she's basically learned wizard magic from. Yeah, she's. I think it's. She's basically magic. a wizard. Yeah, mm.
2: she's- she's that's what she's learned from Earwig. Yeah, and she mm. hasn't learned
1: any of the non-magical parts of witchcraft. I, I think if there's one thing that I sort of was like, oh, I don't quite believe this about the witches of the Ramtops, is that anyone would side with Mrs Earwig, because she's quite clearly so opposed to what witchcraft is really all about. I mean, the previous book, Hammers at Home, which is talking about the heart and soul of witchcraft, being looking after other people and doing what needs to be done, even at cost to yourself- and every witch we meet is like that, except Mrs. Ewig, and by extension, anagramma. It just seems She's so- one of those
0: forces of personality ladies who, like, would destroy you socially if you don't fall in line mm-hmm. behind her. So, if you- it's easier to just quietly go with it and sort of talk to your friends behind her back and not really do anything about it than to actively say anything.
2: Yeah. Or is it a sort of witch thing to let her take her own path to destruction?
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: With a bit of help every now and again.
1: Yeah.
0: Which is Granny's long game.
1: Well, maybe, yeah, that makes sense. I guess in this book, it's sort of, I don't, probably not the end, but it's sort of like part of the ongoing story of her rise to sort of fame and now maybe fall from grace, which we see starting in the short story, The Sea and Little Fishes, when we first meet her.
0: It's a very efficient sort of group tactic, however, to dump like the worst intern on the worst teacher so that you keep them occupied with each other so they don't <laughs> corrupt or mess up anyone else. It's stuff that everyone can get on with their stuff while these two just sort of mm-hmm. reflect off each other until the time comes when they're forced to go out in the world and then they can fix anagramma and shame Mrs. Earwig so that she probably doesn't get another student or is forced to do better next time without having ruined a bunch of witches along the way.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. Sort of contain the problem. Yeah. Mm.
3: Mm.
1: And that seems to have been Granny's plan all along, as we find out at the end. Although Tiffany doesn't cotton on to that entirely until later. She thinks the plan yes. is for Anagramma just to fail, which she's not really a fan of, because even though she does not like Anagramma, and why would you? She's awful. She doesn't want her to fail, and she doesn't want that to, you know, be a, a detriment to the people who live in that steading and who need the help of a witch. Although it did make me think also, what are the people who live near Mrs. Earwig do? Like, they're not going to get any help from her.
0: I feel like they probably, like, because they've shown that the witches are a community who will, like, pick up the slack if need be. I, probably they've got a rota <laughs> of ones who will go in and sort stuff out just if need be.
1: we will go and check on any patients near her. Or, or they go further afield, perhaps. Mm. Mm.
0: Another witch. Maybe
1: no one lives near her anymore. <laughs> they've all moved away. Like, when you move closer to a better school or a better hospital, <laughs> you move yes, closer a to a witch. better witch. Yeah. Get into the good catchment area. Uh, Oh, yeah. If I move over here, I can go see Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax. Mm.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that would be the the idea, would be the sort of meeting point of various overlapping witches. Yeah. So you could choose which style of witchcraft you want or, (laughs) you know, what level of interference. Yeah. Because that would be another aspect, of course. Mm. It was one thing wanting help, it's another thing having witches interfere with, Mm. you know, with your life.
1: Yeah, you don't want too much of it.
2: I'm not sure I'd want to live too close to Granny Weatherwax, for example, because <laughs> she'd probably have plans for me, you know. She'd have several levels of plans. It'd be the plan you think that she's got for you, and then there'd be actually there's other things going on.
0: Yeah. I reckon Nanny Ogg's would be the ideal one to live in, but the worst one would be probably Mrs Earwigs, or in one of those towns where um, Miss Tick has to leave a book to teach you how to properly dispose of a dispose witch. Dispose of a
2: witch, mm. yeah. <laughs> which we see in Wintersmith, of course. Yeah.
0: That was a great... There's just a book of great sequences. I I want to talk about all of them. I know we can't, but there's just so many good moments.
1: And on that note, we'll push forward a bit further in the plot. As After the going away party, Miss Treason has a spectacular dramatic exit as she walks into her own grave and then stops the iron clock she carries with her everywhere. The story around it being that's her heart now, but she's not quite dead. She stopped it for dramatic purposes and then she dies. uh, And Tiffany says hello to death, who... Uh, mentions that she's 13 and we find out it's her birthday on the day that Miss Treason dies. What a what a bummer of a birthday. Jeez. But she uh, she gathers up Horace, the aforementioned animate blue well, cheese. Tries to.
2: Yeah, attempts to. Uh,
1: yeah, well, she doesn't get a chance because a Wintersmith turns up again. At the moment, still fairly insubstantial. So, Granny Weatherwax is able to turn up and get rid of him, whereas the Fegals can't really fight him because he's not really physically there he's but sort they of like try. a weird ghosty misty of course form. they try oh yeah they'll fight anything
2: and they and I, I love that they're almost happy they're happy anyway even though they're hitting themselves it still feels like a good <laughs> it's outcome it's a fight they're happy about it
1: <laughs> yeah that was great and I love that they and it's sort of you don't find this out till a bit later but I love that they adopt Horace as a sort of an mm. honorary well, I love fegal. that Horace creeps up on them <laughs> yeah. they have a
2: feeling something's following them, and they can't tell what it is and I actually I mean creeping up on the feagles is a pretty big achievement mm. Um, a cheeseman. But, but, a, a cheeseman, yes. But, uh, but he does it. He does.
0: He gets a bit of tartan and it's just, it's just, just. Yeah. He becomes thing.
1: a fegal cheese. Yeah.
2: Because Living he's a blue cheese. Shade. Yeah.
1: Yes. Like he's blue. Uh, so I guess. Yeah. Oh, very silly. Granny decides that Tiffany can't stay where the Wintersmith knows where she is. And she quickly figures out that it's the necklace that is um, the link that means he's able to find her. So, she takes it from her and says, we're going to go to Nanny Og's place, which we find out. And this book is called Tier Nanny Og, which (laughs) was one of the- That is now my new favourite pun in all of Discworld. I love it so much. And along the way, sort of challenges her to throw it away, which is something that happened at the end of the last book. She's like, throw it in the well, and she refuses. And that was like a test that she passed. But in this book, she has to actually throw it away. Um, That's quite Tolkien-esque
2: as well. Yeah. There's a sort of Gandalf and Bilbo thing, sort of leaving the ring,
1: Gandalf not wanting to touch it. There's there's a sort of little reflection there too, I think. Mm, And her convincing Mm. herself or trying to convince herself she doesn't really need it, you know, and having that compulsive feeling that kind of she does. Yes. Um, Yeah. I, I liked that. Um, but she goes to stay with Nani Og and has a, another like vivid dream that's more than a dream. Again, a bit like in some of the other books where she sees this giant iceberg in the shape of herself and realizes that that really exists somewhere on the disc. The Wintersmith has made it as another grand gesture. And he's also in the interim made some roses out of ice. And he's just, I mean, he, he's, he very much embodies that idea. That you know, it's such a it's such a terrible, harmful message that you see in a lot of romantic comedies of the the guy who just won't take no for an answer. Like you, you mm. know, he he, he cho- shows up and asks somebody out. She says no because it's usually a man asking a woman, and then he doesn't just go okay and go and live his life and do something else. He just keeps coming back and doing these more but, and more. And,
2: and in the case of the, the Wintersmith, it's because he doesn't actually understand what's going on because he's not really human. Mm. But I think that's quite interesting as well because I think when that happens sometimes in real life, it is also because a young man or an older man doesn't understand what's going on, doesn't actually know how to be a good human in this regard Mm. because either they've not been taught or there's something missing so they can't understand it and sometimes with terrible outcomes. And and sometimes it's because of a sense of entitlement. There's a lot of things that go into all that stuff. But, I mean, the Winnersmith is kind of an example of that ignorance, I suppose. And in his case, he's not human. So, he has to try and gather that information, learn how to be a human, learn how to conduct romance. But it is interesting that it is you know, a metaphor for how humans get it wrong. Mm. Human Mm. men get it wrong so often. And the Winnersmith keeps trying to learn. Of course You know How to, how to do it properly And then the other side of that is The Fiegels trying to help Tiffany learn By you know, getting the romance book <laughs> <laughs>
0: For so her good.
2: From the librarians Who um, oh. are stuck in the snow um, um, Which but,
0: also echoes Her love triangle Essentially as well With the, the evil one With the moustache And the the rich boy Who owns two horses
1: Yes <laughs> Trying to figure out Whether or not the author Knows anything about sheep um, Well, clearly doesn't know anything about sheep Yeah
0: <laughs> Ah. Yeah, or she, maybe they're that special kind of sheep that doesn't need shearing, we <laughs> yes, think yeah. that she'd mentioned that, like, earlier on. That whole on.
1: bit where she's commenting on the book is just gold. I loved it so much.
0: But it's also done so well because she's like, oh, this is rubbish, I can't stop reading it, here's another candle, I'm going to be up yes. all night.
2: <laughs> Yeah, and it still makes her think as well, even though you know, she's scornful of it and it's ridiculous, but it still also gives her some food for thought. Mm. And at the same time, the Wintersmith is still trying to work out what he's become involved with. And how to do it properly, mm. I guess. Yeah. Um, and then Nanny Ogg is also giving <laughs> Tiffany <advice. different> instruction <laughs> as well on on a sort of more earthy, practical level, perhaps.
0: Mm. A more lived experience level than a mm. romanticized version. But yeah, it's like you say, it's very interesting that because the Wintersmith seems to have genuine feelings, but his actions he takes from lessons in the human world, and because the human world's not good at giving lessons, like he basically has nowhere to go but to get it wrong. Because like even the feagles, when they're trying to like explain romancing, they say, romancing is very important. I'm not going to do the Scottish accent. I'll just shame us all. Romancing
2: so. <laughs> is anything very- worn under the kilt. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Sorry>. <laughs> it's basically a way the boy can get close to the girl without her attacking him and scratching his eyes out, which, you know, like sums up kind of the pursue them at all costs kind of thing, but also is very funny. Hmm. Yeah, I found yeah. there's this sort of weird... Well, maybe there's not, but I I sometimes wondered if there's
1: a weird tension in the book between the sort of acknowledgement of that sort of fumbly young people figuring out how to relate to each other stuff where maybe they, they don't understand it or they haven't learned it. I mean, I think it's significant that the Wintersmith talks to children when he's trying to find out how to be a man. Because they don't know, right? They're not why, you know, he needed to talk to someone with more experience, but he didn't. He talked to some children and they told him this rhyme and he took that as like, that's what I need to do, you know? And it wasn't about behaviour and it wasn't about any of that stuff. But he also is programmed already without learning anything that you give these grand romantic gestures. I think that sort of speaks to when you're young- the main things you lean on are those messages you've got from the culture around you, which you may not even properly understand or be able to interpret in a way that is reasonable.
0: If you love someone, you give them a giant library and lock them in your castle. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. That could work, actually. Uh, I would go for that. Yeah, say that. (laughs) But, but, you know, it's a question of the role models that you're looking at Mm. and the role models, whether they're cultural ones, which, you know, in our era, film, television... Everything else, as well as books and so on. And, and I guess in older times and in Discworld to a large degree, it's stories. Mm. It's, you know, it is myths and legends. And the winnersmith has some knowledge of what it means to be human from the sort of mythic underpinnings that he has. And then he goes looking at it. And, and that rhyme kind of gives him the biology of what it means to be a man, not the behavioral stuff to a degree, which I think is also interesting because. That's a problem for many men now who blame their biology for the choices they make mm. as if they can't control their own desires and so on, mm. as if biology overcomes everything else. So, breaking a, what is a man into ingredients via the rhyme means that Winnersmith has only learned that part of what it takes to make a man. Mm. It's working at multiple levels.
1: Yeah, definitely. Tiffany too is like, kind of doing the reverse She's trying to figure out if she's becoming – because they figure out what's happened is when she's gone in the dance, this is the moment where the Wintersmith and the Summer Lady are supposed to meet briefly or at least be in the same place and exchange places as the seasons change. And she has gone into the middle of that dance and sort of been there at the wrong time and now he thinks she is the summer lady or has, has taken on some of her power and indeed it seems that is happening because uh she she has the, the I was gonna say productive feet and that's not the right term. Fecund, at all. Thickened feet. feet. Uh yeah. Which make the the flowers grow under where she walks and screw up nannyogs floorboards.
0: But also that makes up for it by growing her some onions. So that's yes.
1: true. And and eventually getting the cornucopia, which she's tipped off about by a cameo appearance from everyone's favourite Discord god Annoia, the goddess of things stuck in yes. kitchen drawers. To drawers. Ah, oh, so great! I did not expect that was either. Like being my favourite celebrity, like seeing her pop up in
0: this book, <laughs> yes, this is
1: so good. Although she just freaked Tiffany out by saying, "Yeah, the gods are always watching you," which, yes. which if you met a god, would be quite disconcerting. I feel they can see in the dark. I also like that she explains she's an ex-volcano god and then she's all on team. Yeah, she should just kick the Wintersmith out. She'd be summer all the time. It'd be great. <laughs> uh Because that's the worry, is that if she doesn't find a way to exchange places with him again and bring back the real summer lady, then winter might not end. And they're not really sure what she needs to do, like whether she just needs to be around or whether she has to do something. The other witches, who by now are Granny and Nanny and Miss Tick, are all sort of taking an interest in this. But meanwhile, she's also still got to help Nanny Og while she's staying with her and do her rounds. And it was, again, I, I always love getting a glimpse of Nanny Og's life when Granny Weatherwax isn't around. And so, seeing how she behaves on her rounds and uh, how she runs her household and looks after an apprentice witch, I, I really love that. Um, and she's also, uh, as we talked about earlier, now not just trying to help Anagrama herself, but as things get worse for Anagrama, she sort of ropes the whole coven in to helping her out. And they all do. Uh, which is, I think it's a great sort of community kind of spirit there as much as everyone's like, I hate her, but I, I love that the clincher was Petulia saying yes. And everyone's like, oh yeah, mm. well, Petulia won the witch trials with that pig trick. She's great. Like we, we respect her. Okay. We'll do it. I love that.
0: Mm. And it's kind of cool seeing the second generation of witches come up, like seeing how they're going to be.
1: Yeah. It gives you a feeling that, you know, everything's going to be all right because you, until fairly recently in the books, you know, the older ones really don't show you many witches. And in fact, in some of the earlier witches books, they talk about the fact there just aren't any girls wanting to take up witchcraft. And there's only a few witches left. I think at one point they talk as if there's only five of them in the whole Ramtops. And here, you know, when there's the going away party, there's two dozen witches at least who are all adult women turning up. And there's the new crop of the coven. So, it's much more hopeful about the future of witchcraft than some of the previous books.
0: As a writer as well, I think I really like that he didn't go the easy or perhaps tempting route of just having a stand-in for the current generation of witches. Like, you don't just have the next Nanny Og, the next Granny Weatherwax. They're all their own thing, Mm. and he creates their own community and interactions separately. And fans would have liked it, I think. Like, I would have been perfectly happy if he he just sort of had a second generation of all of the same, because it's neat and tidy and nice. But I I prefer this. I
2: think it would be very uncharacteristic if he'd done that, Mm. because... The books are full of constant invention of characters and things and places. And so I think it would have been quite unnatural for him not mm. to, to have interesting new young witches and interesting new old witches too. Like, yeah. you know, like <laughs> Mrs. Treason. Yeah. Um, yeah. Probably couldn't help himself. And that's great. Meeting new witches is one of the delights of, of Discworld.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which um, it does remind me like there's a witch mentioned in passing that Tiffany, because this is kind of two years after the previous book. And Tiffany's only been with Miss Treason for three months at the start. But she mentions she was previously with another new witch who we know nothing about, who I think is named, like, Miss Pullunder or something similar. Or Gizonde. No, not Gazunder. I don't think we ever find out anything about her. <laughs> and I'm, like, imagining, why like, who is she? What's her deal? What, what's her specialty? In fact, all we get is one sentence. Mistress Pullunder, who bred pedigree earthworms and gave them all names... Well, she was hardly odd at all, just a bit peculiar. And anyway, earthworms were quite interesting in a basically uninteresting kind of way. Tiffany just got the cornucopia, which she's also trying to learn how to use, uh, <laughs> with hilarious results of too many ham sandwiches and too many chickens.
0: And because of the cat, the cat just meeping up against uh, it, activating it because it understands and learns languages. Oh,
1: that's right. Uh, yeah. that's uh, And it and there's the, the Discworld equivalent of I don't know if it's modern or ancient Greek. I assume it's it's some form of ancient Greek that he's repurposed there to be Ophibian. I think it's
2: ancient Greek, though I, I don't know, but I just presumed it would be because that would be in keeping and also it's being translated by the wizard, oh. the the sort of the lingering remnant <laughs> of the wizard in, in Tiffany's head. Yeah, that's, yeah I want uh, one of those. Yeah, that Do would be like- super helpful. It's like a yeah.
1: universal translator. It's so handy. Um would mm. be
0: worth going through the hybrid for that, like surely. Like, you know. <laughs> Would it? Um, yeah, it was better than sitting down and learning all the languages. Well, okay, yeah, faster. Yeah, that's <laughs> fair.
1: if you
2: survive the Hiver, yeah, well, that, that's the drawback. Although it's
1: like having a universal translator that occasionally gives you sort of editors' notes, whether you want them or not, <laughs> which
2: I think which would be less good. Yeah, mm.
1: yeah, I'm trying to imagine what that would be like on Star Trek now. You know, somebody's talking to someone else and then, and then the universal translator is not just telling you what they said, but also giving you commentary about the way that they're choosing to say it and where those words maybe have come from. And you're like, shut up. I'm
0: trying to have a conversation. I'm even more daunted to watch Star Trek. There's just so much going on. Uh, There's I... too much of it.
1: This is, of course, something often said about the Discworld as well. And just as with the Discworld, there are plenty of friendly nerds who can help you. See our episode notes for some guides to get you started in Star Trek, if that's something you'd like to do.
0: So we've got the coven all helping out Anagrama, who has has shown that she has no idea how to do any of the witching things. She just um, thinks that peasants should know their peasant knowledge and <sighs> I can just be here doing the magics with a K. And there's that great sequence where um, finally Tiffany like sits up with her, with the dead man all night. And the next day they're offered breakfast and she tries to turn it down being like, oh, we can't take the little you have. And then Tiffany just sort of angrily is like, you'll go down and have breakfast and you'll not condescends to the people in this town and it's kind of a big breakthrough moment i
1: think yeah
2: yeah i think it is for anagramma
0: mm.
1: there's also that bit i think it's a little later than that where she has the conversation back and forth and sort of gets anagramma to admit that she's not from some sort of higher status noble family or wealthy clan of people she's from poor farmer stock as well and that's where her drive to be better comes from is that she's ashamed of where she's come from in a way, or at least I think that's where it's coming from.
0: And it would certainly have been drummed into her more by Mrs Earwig who would absolutely push for that.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, she's basically following Mrs Earwig's teaching when she doesn't want to be involved in anything. And Mrs Earwig obviously doesn't do any of
1: these things.
0: Yeah, I'm shocked that Mrs Earwig hasn't tried to marry her off to a wizard as well.
1: Well, that might be the next stage for her.
0: Maybe- like Mrs Earwig's married to a wizard, isn't she?
1: Yeah, an ex-wizard. Okay. Because you're not. Because they can't be married. Yeah, yeah. but he is—he is an exquisite, and he's got lots of money, which is never quite explained where the money comes from. But it's real money. I don't know if this is explained in later books, but I am very keen to find out if maybe we find out later on he's very dodgy, which would not surprise me from some of the things said in the earlier books. But
0: Terry Pratchett's tax audit series <laughs> could happen. Could happen. That's Moist's <laughs> next job, surely.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, Such a terrible, awful name. Oh. Moist We week. love it though. Moist and Groat. It's just fantastically awful. The moist series. Well
0: mm. it's good because it's like because that's his real self and he's always like suppressing that down, and now like he's forced to be his true moist <laughs> nature. <Yes. laughs> it's just- oh
1: no. Well, <laughs> getting away from moistness, the Wintersmith thankfully is freezing all of the moistness because it's just getting worse and worse. The snow has been the worst they've ever seen. There's a great line in there where it's so deep they have to build tunnels between the houses and stuff. And there's, there's a line where the old folks are saying this is still not like we used to have, but those comments slowly died away as it's like, Oh no, it really, it really is worse than we've ever had it before. And the witches are pressed into full force because nobody can travel. The witches have to carry food around the place. The cornucopia is very useful because they can make more food. But it's just too much. It's too hard to deal with everything. It's exhausting. And Tiffany's worn out and eventually Granny Weatherwax is like, you got to go home. Because this is going to reach the chalk and they don't have any other witches. And also, you need to get away from here. <laughs> like, the Wintersmith is going to find you. So, she heads off. Although not before she meets the Wintersmith again and Anna Grandma saves her. I did not expect that. Um, and this is obviously some time has passed. Everyone's sort of been helping her learn the ropes. Tiffany has given her the boffo catalogue that she found in one of the books that Miss Treason gave her when she died. Full boffo. And, yeah, she's gone the full boffo. Exactly. She's bought, like, the mask and the weird rubbery uh, claw hands. The bubbling and, cauldron. And uh, the cauldron, stuff. Yeah, yeah. With, with extra green.
2: Yeah. yeah. With the packets. Um, the packets of green.
1: And it ends up creating this whole new story that uh, a little bit- And I didn't I didn't sort of tweet to this until afterwards, but it's like she's basically the witch equivalent of the Incredible Hulk to these villages yes. now. is that When she turns gets green. angry, she turns into a big green monster witch. <laughs> but she sees off the Wintersmith and gives Tiffany her broom so she can get back to the chalk faster because uh, Miss Treason's old broom has got training brooms attached to the end of it. <laughs> Stabilisers. Oh, I thought that was- The the way- Even just his inventiveness with different kinds of broomsticks is so great.
0: And his acknowledgement of how uncomfortable they would surely be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: She sets off back home. meanwhile, Granny's stopped the fegals from interfering because she's got another job for them, which is they have to go and find a hero who's going to rescue the actual summer lady so that she can come back. And she has a hero in mind for the task, which is Roland. So, she and Nanny Og send them off over the waterfall where they threw away the horse pendant earlier- Tiffany goes home and along the way finds some letters from Roland. And this has been a nice sort of thing that we've discovered in this book too: is that they've been sending letters to each other. But then there's one. But he
0: has been looking at some other girls' watercolors. Yeah. So yes, yes.
1: And then she doesn't respond to him for a while. And then she finds that it's just because of the snow. There's a few letters and indeed a present, which is a box of watercolor paints for her, which he sends without sort of much comment. But I thought that was quite tactful and thoughtful of him. He's like, look, I'm not, mm. I'm not preferring this other person with. Watercolors. I much prefer your watercolours. Yeah. Do we, I mean, how do we feel about their, because we don't really see them interact directly at all in this book. There's one scene where they meet, but the scene ends when she sees him coming. Um, so, we don't get to see them talking to each other directly. And then the previous book, really, the only interaction they had was him awkwardly giving her the present. And there being some sort of mention that they've been talking to each other or he's just always around. And she seemed kind of a bit peeved by him. But then she gives him that incredibly thoughtful present of the horse and now in this book she's giving her more presents and they're exchanging letters. How do we feel about their relationship?
0: They're two people weighted down by duty and they're the only ones who really understand each other in their worlds. And sometimes that would irritate me in a story where it's – oh, well, these two characters have to be together because they're the only people they know. But that doesn't quite feel like the case here because they have been given years upon years for a genuine respect and affection to grow. She's also sent out into the world. It does seem like their connection is by choice and understanding and underlined with respect. So in the first book, I was like, oh, no, they're going to make him a love interest and I'm going to hate that. But I actually am on board now. Yeah,
2: I think you're right. They have that connection that, they know more about how each other really are than anybody else. They have that shared experience of what really happened with the Fairy Queen, mm. even though it's believed that you know, Roland saved her, uh, You know, despite his efforts to, to say otherwise and, and so on. But they, they know what actually happened, so they have that shared experience and they've kind of grown up together in their own secret lives, I guess, and communicated to each other what's going on in the lives that are hidden from everybody else. So, they do have that, that shared experience that they're growing up together, I guess, both burdened by responsibility, both with problems no one else has, and uh, they write to each other about it. That's a foundation for a strong friendship, at least, whatever else mm. may happen, which is always a good
1: foundation for anything else. Mm. And he's changed a lot too, like we sort of find out in this book that He's become really bookish. He has to wear glasses now, and he makes extensive use of the library in the castle. He's been reading everything, so he knows all this stuff. Like when the fegals come to him uh, in in the in a moment to tell him he's got to be the hero, he already knows the kind of legend they're talking about because he's read about it in a book. And you're like, okay, well, this he's is also read
0: about fighting with swords in a book, though. So. Yeah,
1: so he's he, look, he's a he's a bookish theoric, and I can respect that.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's more like the sort of person Tiffany would like. Mm. Mm. I mean, and he's kind of – she is more interested in him because he has become more interesting. Mm. And I don't think that – he didn't do it with that intention. It's mm. just his his nature. Mm. So
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, everything that's happening to him, like he's obviously going through some really rough times as well and that's sort of forcing him to sort of in, – in a similar way to Tiffany has sort of risen to the challenges that she's been presented with. He's kind of trying to rise to those challenges too of his family of his aunts and what's happening with his father and the burden, as you say, of being – nobility and, and being supposedly having to be in charge of all of this one day. So, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And I and like you, Liz, I did not expect to be on board with this, but actually I was like, oh, no. Like, I don't know that they'll end up together. Maybe they will. They don't need to. I no, don't
0: ship it, but, like, if it happens, I'm not going to be angry.
1: Yeah, it feels natural that they are where they are right now, and it feels feels right. So, I was into that, at least. Uh, but the fegals do turn up to him. Um, and tell him he's got to be a hero and realize that he doesn't really know how to fight with a sword. So, they they do the straw man trick, which they've already done a couple of times in the book for other purposes uh, of getting into a suit of armor and train with him. Um, and he does manage to cut them in half, which I thought was pretty impressive for someone who's never done more than read about sword fighting in a book.
2: Well, he did- He has learned about it because he learned about it in the We Free Men. There's some mention of him at learning sword fighting. Oh,
3: that's true, yeah.
2: So, he's got some background, at least, though. He's obviously moved away from it.
0: A young man of his station would surely have at least a grounding in that. Yeah, that's
1: true. And, I mean, and also, importantly, he has been practicing in the mirror with an imaginary sword, which will become very important, which... I mean, for something that's introduced so late in the book and then it is important, I was like, oh, I didn't expect, I hadn't been waiting for this. It was, it wasn't so much a Chekhov's imaginary sword as it was like, um I'm just going to take this. I'm just going to put this here. Uh You won't really realize that I've put it here. And then look how I've made this relevant. Uh It was very, it was very good. I really enjoyed that. But the other thing that happens at this, you know, nearly the end of the book is uh that Wentworth goes fishing and catches this enormous pike and inside it, is the horse, which has come down from the ram tops in the river. And that's a such a fairy tale moment. And she sort of takes it out and touches it. And- Th- though as Granny Weatherwax noticed, it's usually a salmon. Yeah.
2: Not a pike. <laughs> I like that.
1: Yeah. A little touch. Uh, mm-hmm. Her little commentary about the details is delightful as well because she just knows. I mean, that's her thing, right? She knows stories so well and knows how to make them work and how people get caught up in them. Uh But this is what leads directly into the first chapter is because as soon as she touches it, the Wintersmith knows where she is and the snow starts to fall incredibly hard and the sheep are going to get buried, even though it's springtime and they've just lambed. So, she goes out to say to her dad, we've got to do something about this. And that's when the first chapter happens. And that leads us into the
0: last chapter, which is quite long. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. Cause it's like two stories at once, but they're like the same story, but. Yeah. Well, this is one thing that surprised me about this book is that I
1: feel in previous books where he's used chapters, usually the chapters are all kind of a similar length. Where in this one, there were a couple that are really short and there's the last one, which is very long compared to the other ones. I mean, it, and it doesn't feel bad, but it just sort of made me think because I've been reading so much Terry Pratchett, I'm not used to reading chaptered books as much anymore and it just made me think about how much of a choice about when you begin a new chapter what does that mark what is the you know what are you saying with that new chapter heading
2: well chapters you know they're the big punctuation of the story i mean you have the punctuation through sentences and paragraphs Mm -hmm. but chapters if you use them or scenes they're also punctuation so it would have been very deliberate on his part to make the chapters the length they are might have been instinctual as opposed to sort of intellectual. But I'm sure particularly that last long chapter, it felt it needed to all be one and not have that pause or that break or that transition because that can be all of those things. But it is you know, it is always interesting. I mean, if you're a writer it's always interesting the structures of how the story is told. And of course sometimes you read books where people get it wrong. Where the chapters are arbitrary or stupid or they just feel like they're the breaks are in the wrong place or you know or they are using scenes but it doesn't actually make sense it doesn't add up to anything mm. but i'm sure in, you know and it's, it's interesting i didn't i didn't actually notice that
0: i guess like there's a lot of things that need to happen in it so i'm not sure if the length was his deliberate choice but you can't break it up because that would break the tension of it because it's kind of like you've got your breath drawn in and he, if you put a Gap in it, you can breathe out and it won't be as dramatic. Yeah. yeah. The
2: momentum would be lost. And, and yeah, you're right. Maybe he created a problem for himself, and that was the answer. And breaking it in half was a possible solution, but it would have been worse than having a long chapter. Yeah. Did you you feel like the long chapter affected it? Did you notice it when you were reading it then? The
1: main thing I noticed was not the length of the chapter per se, but that there wasn't like an epilogue chapter. Like that wasn't a separate part. Like there's that bit at the end, which happens two weeks after all of the action. And, for, yeah. and the thing that struck me was, why isn't this a separate chapter? Like, this feels like it should be, even though it's quite short, yeah. it should still it be separate. Also a
2: break in time as well. Yeah. That is an interesting choice.
1: So, I think yeah. that was the main thing for me. Like, I think the rest of it, because it all happens sort of very quickly, even though there's a lot of stuff, as you say, Liz, and there's the two threads, because there's Tiffany- who now that the power has gone out of her, she's lost the power of the bonfire, the Wintersmith is able to take her away to this palace of ice that he's built on the downs overlooking the chalk where he's making her this offer. Um, And she wanders through it like this empty palace. Reminded me very much of Bluebeard's Bride, just like wandering through the empty house, looking at all the rooms. But he offers to be her eternal companion while the rest of the world is encased in eternal winter, except for the chalk, which he's going to keep, you know, safe from that. For her, And she will be safe with him because he wants a companion now because he's sort of a bit now that he's become a person and he's separate from the world, he sort of is feeling a few, even though he hasn't got it right, he is feeling a few things like he's sort of he's kind of sad and annoyed about how he never gets to be with the summer ladies. Like, but I can have a I can have a companion forever in you. And it doesn't even feel romantic anymore at that point. It's just sort of like I need to be, I need someone to hang out with now that I'm a person. Otherwise, I'll be lonely. Get a cat. Yeah, just get a cat. Yeah. Get a snow cat. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, there's that thread. And then there's the other one, which is Roland going with the feagles into the underworld. Because now it's time that Summer Lady has to be released so that this can all come to a conclusion. And that is very classic. Orpheus and Eurydice, wandering through Limbo, crossing the equivalent of the River Styx. There's a suspiciously familiar sounding ferryman who I don't think is Death, but just sounds like Death. He's kind of like- It's just the accent of the underworld. He's got a similar job, but he's not the same person. Sort of
2: lesser, a lesser functionary. Yeah. I mean, that's amusing too, of course, the whole paying the fare Mm. and the feagles (laughs) circumventing the need for the pennies. (laughs) He's like,
1: we're already dead, so we don't need to-
2: well, there's also so many of them, it's that they refuse to get off, and yeah, know, it's
1: just it's threatening a, to
0: stay as a yeah. way of getting your mate. Yes,
1: yeah, that was yes. pretty
2: great. So that's a classic fegal move, really.
0: I want to know what they did last time. They they got they, he dropped so many clangers of hints, but he's like, "Oh, I'm still cleaning up the bottles." Like, yes. just- yeah, they just had a bit of a bender. They re-
1: also refer to the underworld or limbo, as they say, it used to be called because the door was so low. <laughs> Uh, very funny, but they, they kind of intimate that it was, it's changed a lot. It's gone really downhill since they were last there.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, and like, or because oh. they were last there. Or because, yeah. Cause I think they say something like, nobody's looking after it anymore. No one's tending to it, which is why the bogles have turned up. And they are, for a thing that shows up in the last chapter of the book and isn't in the rest of it, they are so frightening. Like, what a creepy description of a creature. First of all, what they do, which is uh, they hang out in limbo and anybody whose souls have become lost and they're stuck in the underworld, um, they just sort of suck out their memories and thoughts because that's their food and drink. But also, you can't see them unless your eyes are closed. I mean, it's a little bit, you know, modern Doctor Who. It's a bit like Blink, you know, the one where you, you can't blink. Yes, all the- I do. And that was, that
3: was mm. a good one.
1: Yeah. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of that. But then the way that they're physically described, where they're kind of like these sort of scribbled outlines of creatures with only- You can just sort of get impressions of details. It's kind of the literary equivalent of keeping your movie monster in the darkness. So, you, know, you never get the impression that it's a dude in a rubber suit.
2: It's it's better imagined than seen. Yeah.
1: But so good and creepy. Um And then also the way he ties in what they do to what Roland's experience has been and how he has a particular hatred of them because of what the fairy queen was doing when he was abducted with her pets that sort of like fed you memories to keep you happy until you die. And then also the fact that his father is kind of losing his mind as he gets sicker and can't always remember things. And so, he's just like, I hate these creatures. I want to kill them all. And it just just all came together just spectacularly well.
0: And I think it's also interesting in a storytelling perspective because death is not treated as the worst thing in a Terry Pratchett book. So you need something that is worse than death, especially when you're sort of in there yourself. So they fulfill that really well because if death is not the ultimate like thing you're trying to avoid, what is worse? And it's them.
1: Mm. And it's an interesting evolution from the really early books where he's doing that sort of fantasy parody where his idea of what the horrible creatures are is very Lovecraftian. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a piss take of Lovecrafts, the things from the dungeon dimensions with their horrible forms and weird bodies, but they, they, um, this is, this feels much more dangerous than they ever did as they were sort of this sort of nebulous. We don't really know what they want or what they're going to do. Whereas this is like, we totally understand this and it's horrifying.
2: Yeah. And as you point out, you know, it was around the time, he was diagnosed with, you know, his condition. Maybe that was part of it as well. I mean, the the loss of who you are is a very frightening and horrible thing. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it was I don't know, if it was at that time becoming more real to him or in a horrible way, it was life imitating art and he wrote it and then later it was happening to him.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well it's hard to know because you know, he would have been writing this obviously before it was published. So, exactly where yes, it sits yeah. in the timeline is
2: yeah, and when it was written, yeah. yeah.
1: But yeah, it certainly ties in. Uh, but yeah, Roland goes on this adventure, and the fecals are sort of there to help him, but they really sort of just egg him on. Um, apart from getting him over the ferry, they don't they don't do uh, a great deal of practical use. But that's fine. That's well, they get him out. They do get him out, which is important. It's quite a lot of practical use, I think.
0: Mm. To mm. Be well, all right, that's fair. <laughs> Like the the stagehand you know, making the play happen.
2: Yeah, credit where credit's due, I think. The the Fegals do deserve credit. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, but I mean, he also, I think he also quits himself well. Like he does what he needs to do, but also he realizes that the sword is no use to him that he's brought with him and he throws it away and he says, I've got a plan. And then later on, having been told by the Fegals that thoughts are real to these creatures, he imagines his imaginary sword and uses it to absolutely just slaughter them all. Which feels quite righteous and amazing, and i was i I was not expecting that from Roland, and I was very pleasantly surprised,
0: plus it's like more in line with his personality, like because he's using his brain rather than brawn, mm. like he's using brawn too, but it wouldn't work without brain
1: yeah, yeah, so he succeeds, uh he has to kiss the summer lady who currently looks just like Tiffany, so that's
0: so much smooching, I know it's a bit. Yeah,
1: but he's, he's quite chaste about it and a bit embarrassed. Um, so I feel like he approaches it in the right way <laughs> for uh, a boy of his age with his sensitivities. I'm like, mm, okay, I can get on board with this. You feel a bit weird about kissing someone who's asleep. Good. That's appropriate. But it's not Tiffany. It's the summer lady who wakes up and enables Tiffany at that point, who has realized the widow smith, as you were saying earlier, Garth, just doesn't really understand what it is to be human and never will because he's, he's not human. He's an elemental force as much as he thinks he's made himself into a person, he hasn't, he doesn't really get it. And so she finishes the story. She puts the crown on or he puts the crown on her and then she kisses him. And at that point, the full force of summer is available to her. And she draws down the power of the sun itself using that same sort of trick that granny showed at the start of the book and channels it into him and just evaporates him and the winter palace and gives that conduit for the summer lady to come back into the place and put things back on the right track. It's quite a satisfying ending to the story, I thought.
2: And then they have a little snarky conversation.
1: Yeah, she's- She's so, so snarky. She's, so she's so boy, jealous. So- and the way that she's like, you're like anagramma, I don't like you. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that was great. Although I do also like the way she's so humble about it because the summer lady's like, what reward do you want for saving the world from the Wintersmith? And she says, I didn't, though. I just saved the world from a silly girl, meaning herself and her own mistake. And I think that's her owning up and taking responsibility for what she's done. And that's sort of, you know, it's not an apology, but it's an acknowledgement.
2: Yeah. And being a witch Mm, too. It's, you know,
1: the witch thing to do.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then things kind of get back to normal. But there's that nice bit where she finds the nail, because it's one of the things in the rhyme is that he needs enough iron to make a nail, which he's got in his heart. and. Like everything else about him, it gets sort of vaporized, except it just sort of melts. And she takes that iron and makes it into a ring. And then when she goes back up to Lanka to meet up with Granny Weatherwax, they go to see the regular Morris dance, which is dancing winter back into spring. And she gives it to the fool who's coming around looking for coins, who has a slightly Wintersmith feel about him, which I thought was great that that's very ambiguous, but just sort of feels like a good conclusion. It also indicates
2: he's going to come back. Now mm-hmm. winter, will, winter will return. The the whole natural order has been reestablished. Mm-hmm. I think the dance continues in the way it's meant to. The seasons turn, so that it's very satisfying. I think.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And we finish with the sequence of Rob anybody trying to rise to the challenge because when Granny Weatherwax sets him <laughs> off to find a hero, he says he can't be you. She says because for you going into the underworld and fighting a bunch of monsters, that's no big deal. For you, a heroic deed would be something like reading a book from the start to the end. And so, he's now trying to rise to this challenge and he's just finished Where's My cow? (laughs) (laughs) And and starts on Principles of Modern Accountancy. What? Yeah, it's so silly. So silly, but so fun. So, that's the plot of the book. There's so many different stories that feed into it. I mean, it's drawing all these different bits of folklore and fairy tale, which I really enjoyed as a sort of a mashup. Pratchett, I think, has this skill of doing that and making it feel like this is a fairy tale that's always existed, you just haven't heard it before. You know what I mean? Mm. I think it's because he's skillfully reassembling all these sort of Lego bits of different stories and traditions into something new.
0: Yeah, and it's strange that the- it makes you draw in all of the things that you've like even stories that don't fit neatly. Like I found myself thinking about Phantom of the Opera quite often throughout, even though this is not the Phantom of the Opera book (laughs) and the trio doesn't quite line up, but especially in the underworld sequence, I just kept finding myself thinking about that one because there is like the, the sad thwarted love story there. And then the hero writing in, but like, it's all just a bit, it's not clear cut because no one's really a big villain. In that, hmm. I don't think that was the intention. I think that was just me bringing my reading and viewing history with me. But it's just interesting to me what you bring and superimpose on stories. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean,
2: the, the resonance with myth and legend and fairy tales. I think one of the most interesting things, and Terry Pratchett does it very, very well, is where you establish a resonance with some aspects of fairy tales, which mean they work even if you don't know the fairy tale. Hmm. So you don't actually even need to know the exact myth, legend. I mean, I'm sure many readers would, would not know the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, for example, but you, they'd kind of know some of it or a bit of it or some version of it, um, including something – I mean, the Phantom of the Opera, which I I don't know, to be honest, apart from some of the sort of visual elements, but you know, could it be seen as a kind of version of – of that. Mm. Um, So, you feel that resonance because of your own particular reading and what you love and it all feels more connected. That's part of what makes good fantasy work is if you can establish those resonances, that helps make it all feel more real to you. You Pratchett does it extremely well. So, you don't need to know it. You just need to feel familiarity with it, which you may have gained from, you know, Disney movies or Tales told you as a child, or you know, picture book versions that you only kind of half remember, mm. but it's still enough to establish that that resonance.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: It takes a real skill to be able to like take the temperature of what people might have osmosed across their lives as well.
2: Well, I actually suspect that he just used what he he knew. Like <laughs> again, it's kind of instinctive. You don't think about what people may or may not know or who the reader is. It's just I know this. And I'm feeling this resonance, so I'm going to put it in. And I think that works. I Mm. I think that's always sort of the most effective thing is to write it for yourself and it'll probably – it'll work for some others. How many? Who knows? But that's the sort of the basic first step, I I always think.
3: One
1: thing that struck me was in some of his writing for younger people, I think he goes maybe a bit further with what things he includes to make it feel relatable. For example, in this book I felt the Fiegels particularly big Yan and then also daft wally once or twice um say things that really don't make sense in a discworld context and i started to wonder have the fegals been to our world like because some of the things they're saying like when they're on the broomstick and one of them's like are there any meals on this flight i'm like that's that's what you say if you've been on a plane like but, what
2: but there's quite a lot of that in discworld in general yeah i think there's things in discworld which are in our world which you wouldn't expect to be there mm. That's just true. Sometimes in a different context. So, that that didn't feel sort of non-Discworldy to me.
1: I think, yeah. I think it's just the last couple of books that we've read. Like, Thief of Time had this a little bit as well, where I feel like it's in there a bit more in your face than in maybe some of the earlier books where it's a bit more subtle. Maybe that's just me. I, I might just be- um, No, it's-, it's it,
2: It'd
0: be it's nice worth- if they had.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe they have. Who knows? They can get everywhere.
0: I was thrilled to see Postmaster, like, assistant Postmaster Grout get a, yes. a shout-out in it and also potentially a nice new widow friend Yeah, in a footnote. So that's kind of – because he's one of my well, – I really enjoyed reading him in all of well, the Moist books. His sulfurous socks. Oh. See, he was the sulfurous socks, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. he like, yeah. bandaged himself up in all sorts <laughs> of like – So gross. Very dangerous in his health and hygiene. He's oh, so gross. It's just – I, I – was very like it was just kind of like a great moment to see him pop up again. It was just same as when Annoya popped up. I was just like, oh, it's my old friend. But
1: yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, there are a couple of. It's always fun in a Discworld book to have little cameos from
1: other characters, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. We we just previously read in the episode before this Nanny Ogg's cookbook which has more information on Unlucky Charlie the uh, Scarecrow than any other source. So when he got just a passing mention, like they just mentioned his name, they don't even say he's a Scarecrow. I was just like,
0: yeah. <laughs>
3: so
1: I remember and the it, recipe
0: um, for nourishing socks um, made that's me not, not uh, in that's, there. Uh, no, I've not read
2: it. I mean, it's one of that's a Pratchett I've not read. So uh, there we go. Look, it's, wor- it's, it's fun. It's a, it's a bit in of fun. cookbook, I'm making a note.
0: There's a good section on etiquette. Some of the recipes are even delicious. I can imagine. <laughs> Some of them. Which recipes were delicious for you because um, I had one that was fine and one that was horrifying. Yes. Well, I also had one that was horrifying.
1: So, you know, we shared that one. Um, are there any other bits or, or moments that we want to discuss that we've missed or any of your favorite quotes? I mean, there's so, again, this this book is so deep. There's so much stuff going on.
0: I want to do a quick shout out to the librarian sequence, which I thought was great. And the fact that it didn't occur to them for even a moment while they were freezing to death to burn their books. And even though the Fegals were like, You got all this paper and you got a stove. And they're like, Yes. And it's just that total lack of understanding between them. Mm. The whole sequence was really well done. And plus, you know, there's always a joy of seeing the Fegals dressed up as a human, not talking to each other. And it's just great. My knee's giving me trouble. (laughs) Yes.
2: I do like the fegals, you know, wearing clothing and masquerading as, as a human. That's always fun.
1: <laughs> yeah. The the little vignettes of just not just the fegals doing things around the place, but also when the Wintersmith is stealing, like the um, Postmaster Groat's one of them, but there's a couple of other ones where he's taking something from somewhere and people are like, what weird stuff was going on there? I quite liked those. Blaming
2: it on trolls. Yeah. Trolls moving into the region. Yes. Oh, yeah, Blaming it on different things.
1: That was great. There's it's too many things. There's too many things to, mm. to pick up important ones. Normally I'd have a couple of quotes, but I just, I marked so many <laughs> that I can't There's pick many. one.
0: The um, really out in the sticks was a good one. Oh, that, um, was, for, yeah. <laughs> that was.
1: That was. but it's a good, good one. Yeah, <laughs> I'll pay that.
0: We should probably get onto some questions
1: because we've got to send a few yes. from our listeners. So thank you. If you sent one in, uh, thank you very much. We, you'll find out in a moment because we're going to ask it. So um, what's our first question?
0: This one is from Zoe via Discord. The Fegals were such a great bunch in the first two Tiffany books, but as she ages and as the books age and the expected maturity of the reader, do the Fiegels feel too out of place? What do we think?
2: Not to me. The Fiegels feel very much part of that world and part of her life too. So, yeah, I, I I hadn't even considered that they wouldn't be part of it. So it's an interesting question.
0: I think, like, seeing her attitude towards them evolve, like, because as she grows, like, she probably treats them a little bit differently, but they are a constant, so that's one way of showing her growth, but also, like, they're always a source of annoyance to her, so, like, that hasn't really changed. Plus, I, I don't think they feel out of place because I just enjoy them so much, so they could really be shoved into any scene, and I'd be like, great,
2: you're
1: here,
0: good.
2: Yeah, I feel kind of the same. I, I just enjoy them, and
1: yeah, I'd be sad if they weren't part of it. Mm. I feel like he's doing a good job, at least in these first three books, like I said, I haven't read the last two yet, of using them as much as needed. Like, they don't feel like they outstay their welcome. And particularly in the previous one where they're not in it very much, I thought when they were there that those were nice scenes, but we didn't need them for a lot of that story, and so they weren't there. And in this one, they're sort of in and out of it. They sort of weave in and out. But there's whole sections of the book where, you know, Tiffany doesn't see them or they've been sent off to do something else. And I think that separation means we still get to enjoy having them, but Tiffany also gets her own story that isn't reliant on them as much. So, I feel like he's managing it pretty well, but I get where you're coming from, Zoe, because I feel like if she grows up a bit more, there's often that thing in fairy tales and and these sorts of, you know, magical stories where at some point the kids put away the overtly magical things and become a bit more sensible. And you feel like if Tiffany's going to become a witch on her own, the fecals can't always be watching out for her or, or around necessarily, and she might not want them to be. So, I'm interested to see where it goes. So, I don't think it's gotten to the point where I don't think they fit yet, but I think that's because they've been written in in different ways. And her attitude, as you say, Liz, to them is also changing, which I think is interesting. It goes back to where I was saying they feel a bit like they're the embarrassing family who you do kind of need, who will help you out. Um, and it gives that sort of element to the book without her parents and family having to be heavily involved.
0: Next up, I'd like to mention the comments that we got from two sources. So, one from Des via Twitter and one from Shut Up Fangs via Discord, which, to summarise both of them, are you aware of the album Wintersmith by British folk slash rock band Steel Eye Span? See, clearly I am not aware of it because I don't know how to say it. Steel Eye Span. Steel Eye Span. There we go.
1: I'm very well aware of it. I'm a a big Steel Eye Span. I can't say it either now. I'm too excited. I'm a big Steel Eye (laughs) Span fan from way back. But I. That's quite hard to
2: say. Steel Eye Span fan. (laughs) I'm a Steel Eye Span fan. I am the man who is a Steel Eye Span fan. <laughs> uh, you get a whole tongue twist to go. Uh,
1: and I, and when- I like to listen to it with my clan yeah. since time began. Yeah, no, it's the, now it's starting to it's starting to go wrong. But, yeah, no, I, I have avoided listening to the album until I'd read the books. I didn't want to get spoiled. And from the track titles, I knew that it was... Pretty heavily influenced by the book, but I did listen to it while working on the, the lead up to this episode and I really, I really like it. I'm hoping we might even do a bonus episode all about it at some point in the future. So we won't go into it too much, but have you, have you heard it, Garth? Are you a fan?
2: I haven't heard it. I do like Steel Eye Span, though I've not actually listened to anything of theirs for quite a long time and, and Maddie Pryor, uh, the, the singer as well. I didn't know about the existence of it until. Very recently. I know. I was looking at when Smith was published yeah. and there it was. And then, so, yes, I didn't know, but I will listen to it now.
1: Because the album comes quite a long time after the book. Um, so, the, the book was 2006 and the album was only 2014, I think. So, quite near the end of Pratchett's life. We won't go into detail about the album, but I will say it's, they use some of the dialogue and some of the prose from the book pretty much as is, as lyrics. And there's even a track where Pratchett
0: speaks over the top of it. Did they use any of the cons? <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, the next question, um, is from Joel Molan via Discord. What, if any, boffo does Nanny Og use? Ooh. So I looked ahead at this question and it absolutely broke my brain because I feel like she's either all boffo or not at all boffo. <laughs> or if there is a little bit, then it is what she uses with Granny Weatherwax to, to seem a bit more tamped down.
1: I don't, I mean, in the sense of props and accoutrements, I don't think she's got really anything. Like she doesn't have any artifice that way. She's WYSIWYG. Yeah. She's (laughs) what you wish is what you get. Yeah. (laughs) My instinct was to say none. Like as soon as you said that question, I thought none. It's all there. Mm. She does have
0: that thing. Like, I'm just a kindly old lady, you know. But She is kind of like a kindly old lady, but just people put assumptions on what a kindly old lady is, but it's not because of an act. I think. Mm.
2: Is it misdirection? I suppose. I don't think it is. I mean, I think, as you say, she is a kindly old lady who is also a witch, which she doesn't hide either.
0: So. Mm. And she won't be shamed for anything. So, like, I don't get a sense that she would. There's a put on an act because there's no need. Mm. There's the way that Tiffany thinks about her, which is a
1: fat, jolly nanny og who liked to drink and another drink. Thank you kindly. And was everyone's favorite grandmother. But those twinkling little eyes could bore into your head and read all your secrets. I guess that's not really boffo. Like that is just that she has both of those facets. You know, that's really who yeah. she is. Yeah. And people who underestimate her because of that. I mean, I in one of the early books, I think it's in, I think it's actually Weird Sisters. It's the first one. There's this bit when they're doing the big spell to move Lanka through time. It's written in such a way as you could interpret it as Naniog actually is possibly as powerful or more so than Granny, but she will never use that power and keeps it hidden. I mean,
2: in a in a way, maybe that's a sort of metaphysical boffo. Mm. Maybe the drinking and everything is actually <laughs> boffo, and maybe she is this insanely powerful witch who is pretending otherwise. Mm. So is that boffo?
0: All or none. Yeah. So, or, is she uh, will she be buffering herself? Is <laughs> if she's doing the if she's trying to like play a role and convince herself she's not this all powerful. Well no I think she's
2: still buffering other people because mm. she knows what she is mm. but she chooses to present in a different way. Or that actually is what she is. I think it's interesting that we can't tell. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> the is <buffo's> working <laughs> on
1: us. Whatever it is that she's doing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's
2: what, what what Terry Pratchett's doing. It's the Pratchett Boffo yeah. working on us. Yeah.
1: And he was, he was one for Boffo. Like, you read a lot of his stories that he tells about, you know, where he got ideas for certain things in the books or stories about his own upbringing and how he got into writing and reading. And, you know, if you re- look into them too deeply, they're clearly not 100% true, but it doesn't matter. You know, they build up this legend and they tell you something interesting and they're enjoyable and you're like, this is part of- Yeah. You- he understood Which is Boffo. the most important thing. Yeah,
0: mm. and just look at his author photos. Like, there's just the, the <laughs> spectrum of them is amazing. Like, there's some fantastic ones out there. But I mean, the one in my copy here, he's like wearing the classic hat and black, and then just holding like a cane with a skull on the end of it. It's just that it might not be boffo. That might be just like personality.
1: But the hat, the hat is boffo. Oh yeah, mm. definitely.
0: So I love a, a good creative author photo. <laughs> like, I'm just a big fan of that. Like. Uh, sorry, I just got distracted imagining all my favourite author photos just then. And I can't translate <laughs> that to audio, so um, we'll, we'll go on we to the question. All,
2: we can all just take a moment imagining our favourite author photos mm. as well.
0: Please do. I like the ones of like Roald Dahl, it just surrounded by mess. Just just surrounded by... like Because he would work in that armchair.
2: In that little shed.
0: Yeah, yeah. and it's just everything's within reach and it feels... Very authentic, not staged, but also formal in its own way. It's like a very good portraiture. Like it's just done so well. But um, questions. Next question from Rin Betancourt via Facebook: If you could meet any of Sir Terry Pratchett's personifications, which one would you want to meet? Um, so Rin says they'd want to meet Death and the New Truth Fairy.
2: I'd give Death a miss because of the
1: consequences. <laughs> well, um, well,
2: meet them
0: anyway. Yeah, one you day. meet them eventually, right? You
1: know, that's not optional. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, I always felt a great sort of empathy towards uh, bilious oh the god of hangovers. But I don't know if I want to meet him. Like, you know, hanging out with someone who's got a hangover is not always the most fun. <laughs>
2: no. Mm. Uh, choosing one is quite hard.
0: Now, are we, like, hanging out for a while? Are we having dinner? I mean, are we yeah. having a conversation? Like, how- mm.
2: you, you choose different people for dinner. That's for
1: sure. Yeah. I feel like time would be quite fun but I feel like I'd rather meet the old time. I don't Lob's saying I sort of feel like I've already met. I'd love to know more about old man trouble. I definitely don't want to meet him, <laughs> but I'd love to know because he's just sort of this weird side presence in the books where he comes up every time this stuff is discussed, but we never really find out what his deal is. And I think that's probably for the best
0: annoy account because I feel like that you'd just learn a lot of interesting stuff about history and also it would be probably not a bad time. Like you'd, you'd it'd be an enjoyable conversation.
2: Except it probably would be sort of like hanging outside the office having a smoke mm. with her. You'd have to do that. <laughs> but you'd probably get some interesting gossip.
0: Yeah, back from the volcano days. That's kind
1: of what happens to Tiffany in this book, right?
0: Yeah, <laughs> the rain and the lava just...
1: And the screaming.
0: You couldn't ask her a direct question. She's the person who sort of like drop bits of interesting things in unexpected bits of other conversations. So you'd have to spend a long time to get some good stuff. You wouldn't have to ask questions.
2: You'd just listen, I think. Mm. But um, I mean, I'd love to meet any of the, – the witches would be interesting, if daunting, mm. but that'd be fascinating to meet, including Tiffany. yeah. And the Feegles, yeah, (laughs) to meet them. I mean, a night. uh, I'm not sure I'd I'd want a whole night on the town with the (laughs) Feegles. Wouldn't uh, survive.
3: No, No, I don't think anyone except a Feegle or a a Cheese would
2: would survive. Yeah, but uh, a passing drink where they kept going would probably be quite interesting. Yeah.
1: Mm. Oh, you know, look. As far as the personifications go or avatars, I mean, I do like Ronnie Soak, but I think as a role-playing game player and board game aficionado who often has to roll dice feel like I would like to meet the lady. I can't say her name yeah. for obvious reasons, but I feel like she'd have some interesting insights. <laughs> we could play a few games. It would be fun. Do you reckon
2: she'd win? Oh, a natural 20. Oh, a, <laughs> a natural 20.
0: Oh, a natural 20.
1: Yeah, that game could get boring, I suppose, quite quickly.
0: Uh, it depends on whose side it lands. Yes, anyway. that's true. Oh, look, you rolled a one.
2: <laughs>
1: Uh, Definitely not playing talisman with her. That would be a disaster.
0: Alright, right. So our final question comes from Sven via Discord. Since we learn a lot about witch boffos and we all might or might not have all arranged our rooms during this time to look better on a video screen... What if your new work-from-home setup is a real boffo? For me, it was shifting all my Pratchett books one shelf over and replacing them with my engineering books so that when chatting from the private PC, I had a Terry background. And from the work PC, there are generic physics and code books behind me. I love that. <laughs> That's great. That's a good idea. Well, I feel mm-hmm. like you can kind of see mine.
1: Uh, so, I share this office with my partner. It's like the spare bedroom of the house. It's a small bedroom, but it's got a mirrored wardrobe. So, I put posters on the mirror so that if I was having a meeting she wouldn't be visible to people if she didn't want to be uh but I put the posters I have put up I've kind of deliberately chosen um is that baba papa is it is what's that the the purple oh that's uh so the okay so this is a poster from the first ever comedy sketch show that I did that's from a show we called The Phantom Grimace this is back in 1999 <laughs> so it was when The Phantom Menace was in cinemas appropriate timing uh <laughs> and so we just thought that was a funny stupid name for a comedy review so i've got that and i've got some other posters of things i've done and on the other side on this bookshelf here I put up some one-page RPGs from people that I know um, so that when I'm doing game workshop stuff, people can see them in the background and they might go, what's that? I'm going to look that up later.
2: Well, I did look at those. I thought, what is, is it Honey Heist?
1: Honey Heist. Yeah, I've been reading that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's a that one-page. You can find it for free on the internet. It's by- Sort of one-shot. RPG sessions. Yeah, in which you play yeah. bears who are also criminals and you're trying to steal the <laughs> honey from HoneyCon. Uh, that is a Grant Howard original. It's been a huge success for him, but it's also just such a great amount of fun to play.
2: I'm, gonna, oh, I'm definitely going to check oh, it you, out.
1: You definitely should. It's a lot of fun. Um, so, yeah, I put that up there to give me something to talk about. So, that's probably my bits of boffo. And I've also tried to position this bookshelf and some of the things on it so you can see my little handmade kakapo up here. Uh, handmade dragons. My mum made this dragon. He's very swamp dragon. Really He's got a bit of dust on him. Mm,
2: dust or ash? Not in frame, but I have a disreputable dog <laughs> and a mogget <laughs> that a bookseller made for me in Norwich. And oh, the collar
0: safely on, yeah?
2: Collar's safely on and they okay. sit on my desk. But I've actually just recently moved. I'm not at home. I'm at my office. I've just moved to a newer office. I was on one corner of this building and now I'm on the other corner for various reasons. But this is, in fact, the first time I've done anything from this office which you can't really see but it's a lot bigger than my old office oh, wow. and it's a like uh, huge room yeah it's a big it's a big room but you can see well there's lots of my books there but also lots of whiskey on the top <laughs> shelf there <laughs> which was all sort of stashed under tables and behind a sofa and so and I had no idea I had so much I was putting it out I was thinking oh my gosh I've
1: whiskey for you put- got enough I've to got- feed an army of feagles there
2: well, it's like a cornucopia. Is, well, yeah, the fecal, the, the, the fecals will just deal with that in a, probably in five minutes. But, uh, it made me think, yeah, I should stop collecting it probably because I collect it. I don't really drink it, which is it possibly spoils the purpose. I do drink a little bit, but I collect far more. So I guess that's boffo too, isn't it? Really sort of set dressing, except I haven't obviously have not figured out where to sit to you know, gain the full benefit of, uh, and I have another two bookshelves of my books, which if I was thinking properly, I would have behind me, I guess.
0: You've got options, though. Like, you've got various options. choices in I that room alone. So yes.
2: That's- and, I could, and there's another book. That's a small bookshelf of just sort of collectible children's books and The Lord of the Rings at the top, mm-hmm. which is sort of overflow from home. But, you know, is it out of the frame? Does it count? It's not boffo if you can't see it, or is it?
0: Mm. I mean, my thing for – it depends on what I'm doing. So, if I'm doing like a a recorded event that people will be watching, like if it's like a Writers' Festival event or something like that, I have a setup over on the other side of my house, which um, secretly is right next to my front door. So, I always am hoping that no one is going to deliver a package. That is just a white wall, so people just can't tell anything about (laughs) – What's going, on, where I am, what's, what's happening, who I am, what's my personality? It used, to, there used to be a painting that was like colorful triangles, which also like it was beautiful, but also said nothing, but it fell down in the middle of the night one time. And so now it's just a white wall. When I'm doing something like this, I'm in a more comfortable spot. Also, my computer is on a lazy Susan, so I can easily turn it. <laughs> That's handy. <laughs> yeah. I'm always impressed by this. So I don't know if you can see that. That's where I work. My desk is there. So I keep my notepads and things, but. If I know that any of my books, because I've got stacks of books all over the house, because um, there's not enough shelf space for them, I turn them around so no one knows what I'm reading or what I haven't been reading or what what's going on because that's personal. Your boffo is the blank slate, Liz. Yeah, unless mm. you want to share it.
2: I mean, most of the last year I've been doing my uh, online events from a shed <laughs> in the garden, which is a music shed, which has black acoustic curtains. So it's just me with a black curtain behind me, Mm. which is kind of magician-like, I suppose. Mm. I should try and do something, have something appear from behind the curtain. (laughs) So have an arm and a white glove, just come out and hand me a cup of tea or something. (laughs) Like I've got an unseen servant behind the the black curtain.
0: You should absolutely do that. I should
2: do that. And it's like all good ideas that I should have done before now. Maybe I will.
0: Well, now that we're all used to screen, like it's time. Now is the moment for things to get like yes. get a bit more, like a ins- bit more interesting. Mm. Yeah. yeah, now that it'll be a bit more
1: intentional than we're forced to do it.
0: I think hopefully, hopefully. It's like the opposite of a boffo, just hiding, hiding <laughs> things from people.
1: <laughs> That's a boffo. Or if so. it's like a
0: conversation with my family or something, I'm facing the other way with my computer on my desk, and behind me is just the horrors of the kitchen. Yeah. Families like to
2: see living areas and what's going on, which is understandable
0: that kind of brings us to
1: the end of the episode um garth thank you so much for joining us
2: it was a pleasure talking about books how hard is that you know
1: <laughs> well speaking of books you have got a recent one out in just in november in 2021 which is the latest book that's part of the old kingdom your series can you tell us about it sure
2: terseal and eleanor is the latest book in my Old Kingdom series, which began with Sabriel way back in 1995. And there's a 25th anniversary edition. Well, there's actually several different 25th anniversary editions of Sabriel. Uh, out this year, those who are good at maths will think, hang on, that's 26 years. You'd be right. Last year doesn't uh, count. <laughs> but, yes, last year doesn't count. And also, it's the American 25th anniversary. And when we were looking at doing an Australian 25th anniversary last year, it very much was... This year sucks. Let's do it next year in the hope it'll be better. And it it was somewhat better, I guess. I'm starting to sort of drivel at this point, I think. (laughs) Um, That's all right. I I should actually just probably just read the blurb would be the most (laughs) effective thing. But it it is a prequel to Sabriel. It is uh, Tersil and Eleanor. They are Sabriel's parents. Mm. Eleanor has grown up in (laughs) Ancelcia. She doesn't know anything about the Old Kingdom, but she's drawn into it and the struggles that exist there between essentially the forces of death and free magic and, and life And it's about how they get together and how they must join forces to combat those ancient evils Mm. and what comes of that. There Mm. we go. I should have prepared myself better better for that <laughs> That's one. all right. It's okay. Nice. Like,
0: that's why you write a whole book. Like You, well, you don't I, expect to have
2: yeah. to. Well, you, I do, well, actually, I do mm. expect to. And I should be better prepared for it. I think it's the sort of thing I should do at the beginning of the podcast, <laughs> not after a couple of hours of talking <laughs> about books. Where I just think yeah,
1: yeah. About someone else's book as well.
2: Someone else's book. I just think that just sounds terrible. Oh, no. <laughs> but it's uh, – I. It is not a terrible book. Um, I, <laughs> no,
0: I am very much enjoying it. I had I felt vaguely resentful that I had to put it aside so that I could read the book for this episode. So I'm halfway through and um, a bit grumpy that I'm being made to feel affection for a character I know we're not going to have forever. Ah. But yeah.
2: Well, that's a, a particular that's- challenge of this kind of prequel. Mm. Now, as in real life where well, you don't know the full extent of people's lives – They may have had a long time of being something extraordinary and you just wouldn't know it Mm. if you pass them in the street or they're your neighbour or whatever. And I do like to find those stories in people's lives, regardless of how it ends, there's still all that time where these incredible things could happen and to tell that story. And that's basically what I've done, uh,
1: I think, with with Tersil and Eleanor or tried to do.
3: Yeah,
1: Mm. I mean, it's something that children often don't know about their parents too because they don't often think about their parents' lives before they were born. Uh, so I think it, it works on that level as well. And
2: the parents don't talk about mm. it often mm. too. I and mean, particularly people who've been through very troublesome or difficult or daunting times often don't talk about mm. it. living through a world war, for example, or having been a criminal or having had another life which is they've totally changed or being a reformed alcoholic or all of these things which could have taken place. Before you knew them, or before their children knew them, or, or whatever, there's just so much. There's so much under the surface, I guess, and, mm. and so many stories yeah. to, to to find there. I think.
3: Yeah. Mm.
1: And look, I, and I just wanted to do a shout out too that your book uh, Frog Kisser, uh, which is a few years oh, ago God. now, but I think might be one that people who enjoy the Tiffany Aching books or have younger readers might also particularly enjoy. I feel like it's got a similar kind of vibe to it. Um, but is there any yeah. others that you'd recommend to people who enjoy Pratchett in particular?
2: Well, yeah, Frogkisser would stand. And in fact, I'm I'm sure we're talking about the influence of Terry Pratchett on my writing. Frogkisser would be one which has probably more Pratchett influence than any of the others, really. So that would be a go to. Possibly Newt's Emerald, which is a Regency romance with magic. So it's a little, it's a bit a little bit lighter. Um, it's a bit it's a little bit shorter too, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, But I think with all all my books, what I recommend to people is just read a few pages. Read the first few pages and either you'll want to go with it or you won't. That will tell you more than I can ever tell you. I think that goes for any author, including Terry Pratchett. Just read some and the chances are you'll read a few pages and then you'll just keep reading.
3: Yeah,
2: That applies to Pratchett, not necessarily mine. (laughs) I think it applies to you too, Carl.
0: Get you a teacher that curates a shelf in her room of her own books that she thinks her class will like. And, yeah, yours were on on that shelf at my school. That's good. She had one shelf of books she thought that specifically, and they were her own that she brought from home, and great.
2: We all owe a lot to those teachers and librarians, Um, Mm. so I'm always always very grateful. Thank you, unseen teacher out
0: there. Miss L. Thank you. And
1: thank you also to you, listener. As always, we don't do this for ourselves. We do it for you. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you also to our subscribers who make it possible for us to do this. If you want to help out the podcast, you can find out how to do that on our website. Um You can also just tell someone else about the podcast who you think would enjoy it. That's always very helpful to us. Um, but we will be back, of course, next month. And this week, we're taking a bit of a break from reading, having a bit of a holiday from books. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we'll still be reading other books. You're going to finish, Tersil and Eleanor, I'm mm. sure. But we're not going to be talking about a book next time.
0: Yes, who will be watching The Watch? It will be us.
1: <laughs> I feel, feel like a certain other podcast might uh, feel like we're treading on their toes there. But no, that's fine. We Yes, we are going to watch uh, we will be and discuss.
0: Sitting and watching the television series The Watch as based on characters by Terry Pratchett. Yes. And you haven't, you haven't seen it yet, have you, Liz? No, I have, um, I I keep wanting to say it, and now apparently it's another thing. So, um, yes, I have not watched the series. No, you can say. I've not looked upon the show. (laughs) You can say you've not not gazed upon the the screens, I guess.
1: (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I have seen it, but I'm going to watch it again. I managed to pick up the DVD with some extra features, ah. so I'm going to have a watch of those as well and see if there's any interesting insights there. But we are going to discuss that. We know it's been a bit, um, shall we say, polarising? Is that too strong a word? That's why I haven't watched it. Well, a lot of people have strong opinions about it, so we're looking forward to discussing it, I mm. think is fair to say. So if you have any questions about The Watch Please send them in. Use the hashtag Pratchat52. We hope that you've enjoyed or are enjoying your holidays. Look after yourselves. And until next time, stay cool. (laughs) You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. With Pratchat Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Garth Nix. Pratchat is produced and edited by me, with music by David Ashton of Sample & Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat51. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears,
3: like the Doctor Who podcast, Splendid Chaps, and time travel comedy series, Night Terrace. To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com